Hello and welcome to a series of horrors. I'm Jackie from Canada. And I am Jeff from America. And today we watched Leprechaun in Space. <laughs> no, wait. <laughs> it was Saw 6 today. Yes. The sixth movie in the Saw series. The, the home stretch. Yes. Two to go. Only two more to go. I mean, technically three, eventually one day. But, and so this is obviously my first watch of this movie. And Jeff, it's your second? I think it's either my second or this might be my third. Movie mm-hmm. theater, Blu-ray, today. It felt more like a first watch to you because you'd forgotten everything, right? I remember the broadest of broad strokes is what I remembered about this movie. I remember, ooh, I remember the, how the first trap ends. I remember, oh, insurance company. I remember that. I remember Eddie Winslow was in this movie too. That was about it. Which one's Eddie Winslow? He was uh, from Family Matters, the son. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yes, no. It's clicking in my brain now. Like, Terminator, you're the one that kills everybody. He, he, Eddie Winslow. So I figured he'd have a bigger part since I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And I was wrong. Yes. <laughs> he did not get that big of a part. Yep. Just like in Transformers when he was in that. Poor guy. He just hasn't really taken off since Family Matters. <laughs> even, and even there, he didn't really take off. He wasn't really the star. No. He was outshined by his neighbor. <laughs> poor, poor Eddie. My thought was, I feel that this movie was very much a product of its time. It felt very influenced by the recession. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the first uh, trap or whatever, the victims seem to be involved with the housing market crash. And then also at the same time, that's about the time that Michael Moore came out with his documentary Sicko, all about how shitty the healthcare system in America is and how... Uh, insurance companies get away with pretty much stealing from you and never paying you out. Yeah. yeah. It felt like a no, product. It truly, no, it truly was so so steeped in that those couple of years. That was around the time of the housing bubble bursting with the predatory lending. How did I feel about this movie? I split up watching this movie over three different days. <laughs> so Not a bad one to watch. It wasn't that gory, though. It wasn't Just, breaks because of that. It was usually breaks because my technology was failing me. My first day that I watched it, I was at my boyfriend's house. And for some reason, the streaming service that I was using just would not work on his TV. And anytime I would pause or try to hit rewind, it would just restart the movie completely. So I made it 11 minutes in and then gave up. <laughs> it was like, oh, you you don't want to rewind. You want to start over, don't you? Here we go. Yeah, that was frustrating. And then I tried to complete it the next day. But forgot that I had plans. <laughs> and then person shows up at my house and is like, Are we doing this thing? And I'm like, Oh crap. Yeah. Okay. Um, never mind. Forget saw. <laughs> Next day, stayed up till one AM finishing the movie finally. <laughs> But now, my one of my favorite parts of the Saw franchise conversation. I need Jackie's thoughts of the, of the Saw Six font. Yes, what I wrote down was double the font for Jeff, since you seem to like that. <laughs> I, I did. I do. I, <laughs> like by far and away my favorite. I loved it because they doubled up all the time. It was like hazy, and they put graphics on it. It was oh, very moody. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the font were telling me a story while while they were on. It was great. I loved it. I love that I've got you looking out for the font now. <laughs> yes, now the, the first thing I look at, I must pay attention to what the font of the title of the movie is. There it is. Okay. And this one, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The trap didn't even start, and I'm like, yay, font is amazing. Yep, I agree. This is my favorite font so far. We'll see what Saw 7 has to bring for us, see if they top it. But this was some great font choices. Get ready. It might jump out at you. Saw 7 was Saw 3D. So oh, I, f- I keep forgetting that. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> 
going to throw buzz saws in your face and it's going to be Billy the Puppets screaming at you. It's going to be wonderful. Did you know that Saw 3D was supposed to be released as two different films, but because this film did so poorly at the box office, they just combined it into one film? No, I did mm-hmm. not know that. And now I'm very excited to see Saw 7. Yeah, I was always excited because I need to see Dr. Gordon again. I remember at a time, they're making a big deal over it being the last one. It was like Saw 7, the final chapter. They didn't even call Saw 7. Like Saw 3D, the final chapter. Last one. We're not doing these anymore. You got tired after six of them, which I can see why this one underperformed. Yeah. Especially after the last two, even our scoring of them, they weren't the best. So I guess people weren't as excited to jump to the theater in the first place to watch this one. And then after the first couple of people went to see it, maybe they weren't overly impressed with the product and thus word of mouth was not great. Not sure. They should have not kept it to themselves how singular-minded these movies were going to be from far on. The girl I thought was in the trap last time, was in the game last time, was the reporter from this one. They show real quick, oh, isn't the blonde girl that dies first in the first one? In the first trap in Saw 5, she's the reporter that comes back in this movie. But they show her real quick in one of the press conferences. Like, they focus on her for no reason taking notes, and then you never see her again until this movie. They do that a bunch, and they never talk about, oh, it's the next chilling chapter in this long melodrama of the John Cranmer Chronicles with his family and everybody he's ever met. Maybe not worded it that way. Brought it more to light that this was more than just a singular movie that comes out every October, but more like, hey, it's like a running narrative, like the Marvel movies kind of do today. Yeah, but even then, the only reason that we know that the Marvel movies connect is because of the Avengers, right? Before that, we weren't, and like the usually end credits scene where they have a crossover very briefly of whoever the next movie is going to be. Well, no, yes and no, because even at the beginning, they announced like, we're going to come out with these four movies and then we're going to come up with the Avengers. Like, when Iron Man 1 came out, not so much. It was just Iron Man 1. They made more money than they were thinking, so whatever. But then when they announced uh, Thor, then Iron Man 2, and then Captain America, like, we're going to come up with these movies. Then they're all going to come together in Avengers, and then the end. It wasn't supposed to be more after that. Let's get back to this movie, since we haven't even gotten into it yet. <laughs> and we open on a woman sitting in a chair. There is a large cockroach crawling on her hand. There's a device hooked up to her head. Stands up and this trips the wire attached to the device and the lights turn on. Behind her, there is a table with some plastic tubing, a butcher's cleaver, the long chain that is connecting her device to the table, I believe, and a hunting knife. Across from her, there's a man in a, in a, inside a cage. He's in the same type of device strapped to his head, and he has a table behind him as well with the same materials. She begins to scream for help, and then seeing him approaches the cage, starts calling out his name, Eddie. This is where he wakes up, and she tells him not to move and to listen to her. Don't lean forward. But then he stands up anyways, because why listen to a woman? Patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I have jokes, but I'm not going to say any of them. (laughs) But they're funny. Wait, why aren't we saying the funny jokes? I have no idea. Hey, why would she listen? Why would he listen? She didn't have a sandwich, you know, things like that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, and what? Why is she in this cage? Why isn't she in the kitchen? Come on. Uh, the tape comes on. It's our good friend Billy the puppet, and now it's tape time. It's tape time. Tape time. Okay. The devices on your heads are symbolic of the shackles that you place upon others. You recklessly loan people money, knowing their financial limitations. And this is where I wrote my note of, is this all inspired by the recession of 2008? Yes, yes it is. They lose all subtlety as they go on. You know, right? mm-hmm. He continues, counting on repossessing more than they could ever pay back. 
You are predators, but today you become prey and you will give the amount of flesh that I demand. There, there is a scale before you. It's your only path to freedom. However, only one of you may pass. The choice of who survives is yours, but the toll is the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice is flesh. Before you are, before you are the instruments to exact this flesh, the one who places the most upon the scale will release their bindings. Move with haste, though, for when the 60-second timer hits zero, the gears on your heads will engage, crushing your skulls, and your partnership will be externalized with your own blood. Oh, eternalized, not externalized. Whoops. <laughs> your partnership will be eternalized with your own blood. Who will give the most flesh in order to save their life? The choice is yours. All right, now I am going to make a connection that I don't know if you would have, I don't know if you saw or made, but um, as I was watching today, have, somebody was, must have been watching the movie Seven while watching this uh, and came up with this, because this is pretty much what they make the, have you seen Seven? I, I've seen it once. It's been a long time. Okay. All right. Um, there's a lawyer. Uh, the greed kill. So mm -hmm. these are predatory lenders, also also in this situation because of their greed. What they made him do, they strapped him to a chair, gave him a knife, and made him um, give up a pound of flesh mm -hmm. in order to survive. Um, he bleeds out because he cuts pretty much where Eddie cuts himself, you know, around stomach area. Since I have a bunch, I have a bunch of gut to give. I'm gonna cut here and lose something that I can afford to give away. Let's say, and in the in seven, he bleeds out and dies. But it's pretty much the same exact thing. Like you're stuck in a situation, have to give up give up flesh. Well, it it all goes back to the Merchant of Venice, right? Yeah, and it's like, and this one leaves a note. Uh, in the the in seven, the note reads: one pound of flesh, no more, no less, no cartilage, no bone, but only flesh. Mm -hmm. So that's what they're supposed to do, and also supposed to put on a scale because it had to be a pound. Mm -hmm. So. I just, as I'm watching this one, I'm like, wow, somebody was watching Seven writing this trap. Yeah, I I mean, m the connection that automatically came into my head was Shylock from The Merchant of Venice and needing to collect your pound of flesh. Did they actually do, I just thought it would use it as an expression, as in like, you know, I'm taking so much, it's like I'm bleeding you dry, but it was actually like flesh in that one? I believe it is. I, like, I thought it was more of an expression than like, you know, I could be wrong because... Isn't that where he blinds him yeah. or something like that? I forget. It's been so long since I studied the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> Cannot recall off the top of my head, but um, they do name check it in um in seven. They do name check it as to where they as to one of the inspirations to and the killer John Doe's in that one. Um, but this one was, you know, this one was like give up of flesh of yourself in order to make up for being so greedy mm -hmm. because you're growing, you're quote unquote growing fat off of other people. So that's what, and this one has greed spilled in blood on the ground. In the uh, in seven, but that's as I was watching this one, I just kept on thinking of that. But I did remember how this one end, ended. So. I'm like quickly reading a summary of Merchant of Venice right now. <laughs> yeah. All right, so while, while you're doing that, Eddie is, takes a takes an early rips his shirt off like he's Superman. Takes out a, the, one of the one of the kitchen knives. He wastes literally no time in, in taking the knife to himself. He talk about a will to live. Uh, we might get to this a little bit later because he, if anybody in this movie shows a will to live, it was this Eddie guy. Even and he and he loses. Another thing is, um, so this was a trap that was remote because there it's, it was wireless how else were the screw or was it on a timer was it like wi-fi signals was it did they have a router in the back but how did the scale talk to the device on their head to say one the winner and two to start tightening screws yeah i'm not sure about that but in my brief summary of uh the merchant of venice yes he does literally take a pound of flesh from him when he does not return his investment but back to this trap yes i don't know how the scale is attached and how this works but 
it's a nice little gory scene that I had to close my eyes for part of. This might have been maybe the goriest scene because even the last kill wasn't really that gory. The did they do they say the girl's name? Because I don't remember her name right now. Uh, Simone. Simone. All right, it's really Simone sells it. She won that part in the contest. But um, you see her take knife after knife, and just as she's losing because Eddie early just cutting off his stomach, she starts like halfway up her forearm. Then as she loses, she moves the knife a little bit higher up her forearm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then like to her elbow. Then takes the cleaver to like halfway between her elbow and her shoulder. Oh. Like, it off. It is brutal, but yes. Yeah. Did we mention on the podcast that she's the one that won Scream Queens? No, we, we mentioned Scream Queens, but not who was the winner and she was the winner. Yeah. Yeah, she comes back in part seven because I think she's in a part where they have a survivor support group. I remember the support group. I couldn't remember which one it was in. And since it's not in this one, I know it's in the next one. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, so Simone hacks off her arm in the end with the butcher's cleaver. And throws it into the scale just in time. And she wins. Eddie's skull is then crushed. Can I say she cheated because, you know, he's cutting off flesh. She's like, has bone and stuff in there, even though she lost more of herself. I mean, by the standards of the seven trap, yeah, she cheated. But they didn't, they said, yes, you need to lose flesh. But they didn't say, and no bones. (laughs) So she's just, you know, working smarter, not harder. Did you laugh a little bit when you see Eddie rip his shirt off and start cutting off flesh? She does the same thing, but she's very thin. Yes, I did. I And I wrote it down um, that, you know, Eddie has the advantage of a beer gut. He can cut off some of his while Simone has some great abs. That poor thing. <laughs> the one time having amazing abs is a detriment. <laughs> Damn it. Why did I have to start doing CrossFit? Wait, they didn't have CrossFit. Why am I doing Zumba? Why? Why? <laughs> Damn, Zumba. But anyways, we then do a quick cut over to Amanda and Cecil in a car together driving through the rain, then quickly cut back to a flashback of Strom and Hoff with the glass cage, no, or sorry, glass coffin and the walls pressing in at the end of Saw 5. We then get a more recent shot of Hoff getting out of the coffin, releasing the walls from the trap, and then we see what's left of Strom as it falls to the floor in front of him. I missed the whole Amanda Cecil thing. I must have blinked. Was it a really quick cut? Super, super quick. Okay, because I didn't see it. Yeah, and it's only on the director's cut as well. So I guess we should say we're explaining the movie, but the version we saw was was a director's cut. So if you've only seen theatrical, we might bring up some scenes that you don't remember or know or, or even maybe not have seen before. We then uh, cut to the Umbrella Health Building, and we cut to a group of business people who are on the phone around one large desk. We then cut to who I wrote at first as a gross business dude in his office, pouring drinks for him and some lady while he calls a family member or someone, we're not exactly sure who it is, to bail on their birthday. When you Once you find out who it is, you don't see it as such a bad thing that I thought it was when I was watching because I forgot who it was. I thought it's who you, they make you think it is the whole time until you find out who it actually is later. Yeah, it makes it appear that it's his wife that he is calling and bailing on her birthday in order to... At first, you just think that he's having drinks with a pretty lady. But we find out that she's actually his lawyer and they're prepping or him. Or the company's lawyer. The, yeah. the company's lawyer, yes. Uh, and that she's prepping him for his deposition. And he is in his deposition like, this is really not my first rodeo. I've done 20... I do five of these a week. 
I know exactly how and what to say. I know what the questions are going to be. You don't even need to be here prepping me for this. I am King Deposition Man because apparently we don't cover anything for anybody ever in this insurance company. Yeah. We just collect premiums and don't pay anything else. Exactly. So the deposition is for a man called Mr. Harold Abbott. As we're about to recount Mr. Abbott's dealings with our main dude here. The secretary calls his name. We find out that his name's William. And she says that Casey Patterson is on the line. He tells her to take a message and he'll get back to her sometime this week. William then says that he's the senior vice president of memberships and claims at this job. And he reviews every terminated policy. And he very clearly remembers the, the discussion he had with Mr. Abbott. Yeah, they were sitting in this this very office sitting right where, she, where the lawyer is sitting right now. Exactly. We cut back to the conversation that they had. They're discussing his appeal. Mr. Abbott doesn't understand why he's been rejected. He's been paying the insurance company for 10 years. William says when they reviewed his claim, they found he hadn't disclosed a previous condition. Harold claims he had no previous condition. William says that he had oral surgery to remove a cyst from his jaw. Harold says his claim currently is for heart disease. That has nothing to do with an oral surgery that he had 30 years ago. William then says any kind of oral surgery is going to leave scar tissue. Scar tissue can lead to gum disease, which can cause heart disease. So then you have heart disease today because you had oral surgery 30 years ago. Therefore, into it, no coverage. Yeah, this was the type of bullshit that immediately reminded me of sicko have you seen that documentary i have not seen it okay so i mean i generally don't say put a whole lot of weight in michael moore he's very dramatic and you find out that a lot of his clips are actually pantomimed i I can't think of the right word they're they're fake there's one documentary that he does and he claims that they like he went up to the front of the room of some sort of conference and he was questioning them all about whatever they were doing and they turned off the mic on him quote unquote but it turns out that he was just not talking he was just melding words he did some ridiculous stuff but in sicko there's this one woman who's telling her story about how i forget what she has wrong with her now but it was something very serious like cancer or something like that and the company said that they would not cover her because she once had a yeast infection wow like what? Completely ridiculous. Um, he keeps on talking about it. You know, hey, um, he lied to us, so we have all right to refuse everything. And this is one of my first times I think they fouled up. The writer fouls up in this movie, um, considering what happens later, where the lawyer looks at him and says, you actually think he did that on purpose? Even though she's defending the insurance company as her client, she doesn't agree. She's just doing her job, is what I got from that little phrase, which I think was unnecessary considering what happens later with her. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, but I think she... In- in the scene, she's prepping him for deposition, right? So the opposite lawyer would most likely ask that question. Do you think that he had ill intent? And Yeah, good point. So anyway, but back in that flashback, uh, Harold was telling Will that he's a criminal and that he's paid his monthly premium for over 10 years. He's never had a claim. He's never had so much as a cold. Now that he's actually sick, you're going to deny my coverage. I have a family. Then Will says, those are the rules. Okay, Jigsaw. <laughs> Sorry, but your own actions caused this. And then Mr. Abbott says, you've given me a death sentence. Who's going to cover me now? You just killed me. Not wrong. Yeah, he's not wrong. We that, That's when we cut back to the lawyer and she's asking, do you think that he did it this on purpose kind of thing? And William says, "It's it wasn't my job to assess what his intentions were. It was my job to check the accuracy of his claim. Everybody thinks we're the bad guys. Nobody mentions the millions of people we help. 
every year without incident or our charity donations or the free clinics that we support. Hint, hint. Hint, 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 hint. It's perfect. I love it. <laughs> Um, a man enters Will's office and knocks on the door. Uh, no, sorry, he knocks on Addie's door, showing her a file. Will turns to the news on TV. There's a story about Jigsaw, his assets, and how they were distributed. They were mainly in real estate holdings. Lawyer cuts in. One more question. Who found the error on uh, Mr. Abbott's application? Will says, the dog pit. They work as a team. And we cut back to the people in the next room that are all sitting around the table and on the phone. Will is saying, if there is a discrepancy on any application, the six of them will find it. Then he goes in and they pretty much cancel somebody's policy because they go to the doctor too much. Yeah, pretty much. Eddie from uh, Family Matters, he (laughs) says that he found two application errors for a chronically ill client. This guy practically lives at the doctor's office. This could probably save us nearly 200k over his lifetime. Yeah, so they're canceling his insurance and then Will's walking into the office. He claps the janitor on the back and says hi to Hank and Hank looks like he fucking hates him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, despise like, why? (laughs) Who are you? Why are you talking to me? Can't stand you. You're the worst. Poor Hank, by the way. Yeah, I know. I feel so bad for Hank. We then cut to Hoff. He's listening to the audio of Eddie and Simone's uh, trap tape and the dialogue that they had between them. So a recording from the room. His cell phone rings. So he stops the tape to answer. And then he says that he's on his way. We cut to Hoff arriving at a crime scene. It's the crime scene of Simone and Eddie. He asks the officer what's going on and finds out that the feds have taken over the crime scene. They're asking for like Hoffman in person as soon as possible. He enters the scene. We see the crime scene photographer taking a picture of a jigsaw piece cut out of Eddie. Hoff greets Erickson and oh i said he greets erickson in a rude as fuck fashion but i can't remember how he greeted him and he was like oh so erickson i never thought you got you left the from behind a desk blah 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 Ugh, what are you doing it actually we're actually doing police work here for jeez i can't believe you fair enough yeah erickson says that he's there because fingerprints were found at the scene Prints left on both Eddie's eyelids. There's also prints on the scale, and they have a deal them, and they are Strom's prints. Erickson is saying that he should have been more aware when he found out Strom and Perez were Jigsaw's targets, but he didn't see this coming from Strom. I wish I can say, I want to say, man, why are the cops so incompetent in this movie? But they've been incompetent in all the movies. So I can't really... Well, in the first couple movies, they were just, like, violent and try to beat conventions out of people. Danny Glover and Singh kind of did their job. They were just... There's a lot of incompetence. I also... I was also questioning when Strom leaves with uh, the little girl and she now has that stuffed animal that he had been holding earlier, why nobody questioned it. Like, Fisk saw him with that stuffed animal. Perez very much saw him with that stuffed animal. So did Strom. I guess Strom is out of commission and Perez was not present when the little girl walked out of the building. But have they not interviewed this little girl since? Have they not seen her with the stuffed animal and gone, hmm? They might just go, hey, it's a little girl with a stuffed animal. And they shipped her off to an orphanage, apparently, because I don't know. She's never been seen or heard from ever again. I mean, we do see her in the post credit scene. Those are post credit scenes that I didn't see? Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's a post credit scene. I will cover it. Uh, Erickson said that there is something that Hoff doesn't know about, and he brings Hoff over 
to Agent Perez. And look who's back. Guess who's back. Back, back. Back again, Agent Press, with like a couple marks on her face. It looks like she got into a pretty bad fight with a cat, but that's about it. <laughs> exactly. And so she has survived what we thought she had died from the uh, Billy the Puppet explosion. Hoff wants to know what else they've been keeping from him. And Perez says that Agent Strom knew the five people in the real estate scam from Saw 5 because they had investigated them after the house fire. They investigated the arson. All five people were accountable after a lone witness went missing. They were unable to file the charges. And from here on out, Hoffman is acting guilty and sketchy as shit from, from, like, yep. from here on out. He, the whole movie, there is no way any halfway competent cop can be like, are you sure you're not involved in this? Every time they talk to him, he goes, he goes, what? What are you doing? What are you looking at? So what do you think about this? What are you looking at there, Perez? So yep. when are we going to get this tape about this? I'm like, all right. Eric, Erickson's saying that Strom needs to be found. Hoffa turns to leave and Perez says they want to work together. They're going to, oh, sorry. Hoff grandstanding like the dick he is, I write. You led me to believe that she was dead and now you want me to work with her? Okay, buddy. Don't understand what the problem here was. <laughs> Just gets mad to be mad. Oh, you told me she was dead. You told me I didn't finish my job and kill her? Oh, I'm so annoyed at you. Is all I can figure from this from this exchange? Yeah, doesn't make any sense, but oh well. Now they're offering to give him full disclosure. Anything they know, quote unquote, he'll know. Great. <laughs> they're aiding a serial killer. Good for them. Really proud of you guys. The thing is, we find out that they're suspecting him the whole time. So it's like they know and they're still doing it? Yeah. I don't get it either. I also don't get when they go to a second location with him later, but we'll we'll get into that. I then have my note that Jeff's blonde reappears and her name is Pamela Jenkins. She's a reporter. Oh, you didn't know Jeff's blonde. I'm like, all right. <laughs> when I saw I was like, hey, that's the girl I thought was in the last movie and died. All right. Yep. Got it. Exactly. So she's a reporter and she's asking for a word with Hoff. Hoff is mocking her. He says that she twists the facts to make a better story. It's irresponsible. Pam claims she knows more about John than Hoff thinks. John left Jill a box with his will. Hoff being an extra big asshole with uh, his flippancy. And then Pam asks him to help her get to Jill. Hoff says he'll see what he can do. He then enters Simone's hospital room. She's saying that she doesn't know how she got to the trap. Hoff asks, who did this? Jake's off. <laughs> Hoff says, you didn't cut your own arm off. How is no one pegging this guy as the killer is what I wrote here. Uh, yeah, he goes to like, oh, really? So Jigsaw cut your arm off? Yeah. No, you cut it off, didn't you? Like, yeah, I did. But um, just, like, like she went out on a Saturday night to cut her arm off kind of thing and didn't do it because if she didn't, there would be screws in her brain like her friend Eddie. Exactly. And Hoff's like, well, you did it to yourself. <laughs> So what's wrong with you? And what did we learn? Huh? What did we learn about about life and things? Yeah, exactly. Like, she's just like, well, he made me do it. Well, why did he make you do that? And she's like, mm, yeah, why? Because what Eddie and I were doing was wrong. We were running pe ruining people's lives. And he wanted us to learn. And Hoff is like, and did you? <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for a thank you. Where's my thank you? And she's just like, look at me. Look at my fucking arm. <laughs> like, what the fuck am I supposed to learn from this? What? 
And Hoff is still just like unmoved by her and still no one's questioning what, like if he's involved or not. Like he's like, don't get it. He looks so guilty. All movie. Yeah. All movie. Guilty, guilty, guilty. It's just, it's so horrible. Like the way that he's talking to the victim, like it makes no sense. You clearly were involved with this. Like, come on, I put, I strapped you in this thing. You still, you still not thanking me for this? For teaching you how to value your life? That's yeah. how the, tra- the, the games change a little bit once Jigsaw is no longer in the picture. I get that. And I also, I struggled because like you blew my mind. I think it was last episode or the episode before where you said that you can tell the difference between a jigsaw trap and an accomplice trap because the accomplice traps are focused on killing versus rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. But yeah. then I, I started to think some more. And so Amanda's initial trap involved murder. And so did, in theory, Dr. Gordon's and Adam's. Like, for him, Dr. Gordon, to win the trap, he would have had to murder Adam. That was the point of it. And we'll see throughout this series that, like, right off the bat, Eddie was another murder victim. But there will be several other ones that the only way to get out of the trap is to kill another person. So I don't understand that with Jigsaw's whole theory about rehabilitation. So what the people that, you know, are meant to die, just like they don't deserve rehabilitation, they should just be killed. I don't get it. Yeah, I guess on further inspection, you're it's correct. Um, yeah, because and even we said it when we talked about the first movie, Zepp was there and his game was keep a, a woman and her daughter hostage for six hours or you'll die. I don't know how what he was going to learn with this yeah. and shoot them if you have to. There are some whole uh, Jigsaw's whole ethos, I think. And we'll get into that further because I'm going to have a little bit of a soapbox rant at one point. But anyways, right now we cut to a video of Jill's altered town. John is saying, hello, Gideon. And in the background, we see that Jill has put this tape on. She's drinking some wine. She has a file in her hand and she's looking out the window at the city while the tape plays in the background. We then cut back to the tape and John is trying to like do a selfie with Jill on the monitor to have everyone in the picture. And they're saying, we love you, son. We're waiting for you. We then flash back to Cecil hitting Jill's pregnant stomach and causing the miscarriage in Gideon's grave. I think it was both. Wasn't it both Gideon and John? Did they say John, Gideon, him or something like that? It might have. I don't know. I, I just noticed Gideon's name on it. But it might have been both of their grave. We then see that Jill looks distressed. We get a flashback to Jill watching the VHS tape and getting the bl- black box from Saw 5. And then in the present, Jill opens the box. Six numbered envelopes. She looks at the contents, but they aren't visible to us yet. One last package is in the box as well. Then the phone rings. Pam is leaving a voicemail. She says that she's calling again. She's hoping Jill can clear some things up about her husband. Would love to meet up for coffee. She found something interesting about John's death. In her apartment, I like how she's in full six in the city mode. Just a glass of wine, looking off into the city, <sighs> opening her box, you know, looking over the contents. Just really having a, making a night of it. Yeah. Really enjoying herself. She's like half smile, enjoying herself. It's, it's very interesting to see. Mm-hmm. We then cut to Jill opening up one of the envelopes and Pam's pictures are inside. We then cut to John's autopsy and audio from the tape that was found in his stomach. Are you there, detective? If so, congratulations. You are probably the last one standing. You feel you now have control. You think you will walk away untested. Then we cut to the coroner. It says that to look at the pictures of the jigsaw pieces cut from the previous fix. So this is in present day. Sorry, I didn't write that down. We've cut to a present day scene of the coroner. And he's saying to look at the pieces that were cut from the victims and the current one. 
This one was cut with a serrated knife on Eddie's body. And the other ones were cut with a surgical knife, a smooth knife. So obviously, Strom used a different knife than John. The homicide detective, Hoffman, says, wait, you can tell what kind of knives they use when make, making cuts? I've watched Law and Order enough to know they can, use, they can tell what kind of knives yeah. make cuts on things. This guy yeah. is the worst detective in the world. <laughs> it's, it's like, what? You can tell this? Since what kind of magic is this to figure out what kind of knives are making cuts on things? He's going to be like, wait, you can tell blood type? That's a thing? Blood, it's all red. What do you mean types? I didn't see anything <laughs> else but red. We all bleed the same color, therefore it's the same type of blood, right? No, it's not like I have blood, you have like mortar oil. Come on, it's the same. It's all the same. Baffled look on his face. It's great. He's like, so we could tell it's a serrated, smooth edge. Instead of saying something like, hey, maybe he happened to use a different knife this time or anything yeah. well he is dead now so maybe some whoever is doing you know whatever yeah i am so obviously guilty <laughs> anyway you can tell what Perez i did i mean what jigsaw did what no hey hold on <laughs> Perez has pulled the vials of the old cases to compare the same serrated knife was used on one other victim and can we guess who that victim is it is um uh i can't remember his name now but yes it is the guy that killed hoffman it was Zep. No, it was the guy that killed Hoffman's sister. Um, yes, his name was Seth. Seth, yeah. But I do love how uh, Detective Perez is giving him stank eye the entire movie. Oh, yeah. She's like, I fucking know it's you, bitch. Like <laughs> The entire movie, stank eye. Just like, uh, hmm. I'm going to come eyes at you every chance I get. You're going to look guilty, and I'm just going to keep on staring at you like, you did this. I can. T- I just know it. Exactly. We also find out that the tape from the recent victim is missing. So they were looking into the Seth tape because it was a different person who cut the piece from him. So maybe a different person recorded the tape too. Hoff tries to throw Strom under the bus again. And Perez says, maybe, maybe not. Erickson says Strom's voice on the tape would be the smoking gun. If they had that, they could go public. And then Hoffman's eyes grow big, like, oh, wait, Strom's voice on the tape that I made? Oh, no. Yeah. He's like, how, how do I pretend that I'm Strom and re-record a tape? Hmm. Like, as I forgot most of this movie, I thought the tape was going to be destroyed, like, you know, in a mysterious fire, a la Knives Out or something. It was just going to be, <laughs> there was a fire in the police station. Uh, don't know what happened. Yeah. Well, we do. That does happen at some point. But anyways. <laughs> it does. That's going to have different evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we cut to Jill walking into her cl- her clinic. A woman and a man are arguing, arguing with a nurse trying to get prescription drugs. Jill approaches to help, but then instead sees Hoffman sitting in the waiting room. So she walks over towards her office, making a pointed eyes at him, and uh, he follows her. They both enter the office, and Hoff closes the door. Jill says she didn't expect to see him here so soon. Hoff says uh, there's a change in plans. The game begins tonight because someone, and I wrote in brackets, Pam, <laughs> knows about the box. Hoff doesn't say that it's Pam, though. There's someone that shouldn't know about it knows about the box. Jill is like nonplussed. Eh, whatever they know they know because i think at this point has pam come up to her or not pam has been calling her so by the way they saying pam is being cessationalist about this the jigsaw crime and when they show her they don't really show her being super duper sensationalist about it yeah we haven't really seen unless she was the writer of like all those other articles that were like genius mastermind blah 
don't know. And even then, it's not really sensationalized because a thing like if a thing like this were to happen, it would be sensationalized forever. Yeah, Miss True Crime, you could tell me about it. They would they would have podcasts forever. Like it would be like the jigsaw corner of iTunes at this point because as much as they would analyze something like ridiculous as this or over the top as this. Exactly. I mean, we're still talking about Ed Gein today, and he technically wasn't a serial killer. He was a grave robber. So. Yeah. I think he killed one person. He killed two, but you have to kill three to be a serial killer. Yeah, yeah but and they were just like because they found out about his grave robbing. No, no, he he girlfriend? wasn't girlfriends. Yeah. No, he um they reminded him of his mother. Ah, yeah. So the Norman Bates effect. All right, got it. Yeah, exactly. Well, like that's where it comes from. Norman Bates is based on him, whatever. But anyways, um, so Hoff says that he's in control of all aspects of the game from now on. Jill says that's not what John wanted, and Hoffman demands that Jill give him the envelopes. She pulls them out of her patient files, and I wrote, "What the fuck? Does no one else go into that drawer? You just keep like murder plots in it? What?" I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. Maybe on one file, it's like how to cure people. Another folder is like, all right, if I were to go sideways, I could do this, this, and this to get rid of them. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't don't know what they do in medical school. Oh, my gosh. All doctors are just secretly planning our murder (laughs) plots instead. It could be. You know, it could be all right. All right, this is what he has. Cure him with this, with what's on these pages. But as a thought experiment, I'm going to just go, if I were to do X, Y, and Z, what would happen? Hoff says that from now on, he works alone. Jill agrees and says that he is only carrying out John's final request. Hoff says John's dead and his work is almost done. And then asks who the man from envelope one is. Jill says, unfinished business. Hoff says, when he is done, we will no longer speak. And then he leaves. And Jill looks very broken up about it. And then I wrote, I have interruptions for this. Why did Hoff decide to go see Jill in such a public place with plenty of witnesses? Why does he keep on doing all these very basic things that are wrong if you're trying to hide the fact that you are the new accomplice? Why? How is no one picking up on this? No one's even picking up on his guilty looks. Besides maybe Detective Perez. She's not having it. I, if it weren't for Detective Perez, I would just have lost all faith in every single cop in this movie. In every movie in the franchise, it's to a point of ridiculousness. She's an FBI agent, but she she shows off her incredible um, gunplay skills later on, which made me took her an hour and a half to pull a gun out of her holster. Um, but whatever, <laughs> and never quite got there yeah. until it was too late. And then shoots the obviously wrong person. But anyway, yeah. I will rant on that one. At, <laughs> when the time is right, we'll both have our rant. I'm sure at that point. Well, uh, right now we have a flashback from Jill. It's a flashback of John standing in her office saying that methadone doesn't heal. It simply numbs the senses. He's found a better way. These people, aka her clients, will continue to hurt you and let you down. Jill says that they are addicts and recovery is a process. John says maybe addiction is just part of human nature. And here's where I jump on my soapbox. Or maybe, thanks to Reagan, there is a severe lack of mental health care and resources for people in pain, and therefore they are more likely to look for numbing agents than and turn to drugs, John. Like, there's so much wrong with this whole entire ethos of we're just going to hurt people who are hurt, and that will solve their problems. What? No. These people have probably been through hell in some way. You don't know what they have been through. That is why they have turned to drugs, generally. So we need better mental health care for these people and more resources for them so that they can beat this. Not put them in a life or death situation and hope that they maybe live. Very frustrating. Yeah, and that's true. And try to use that as a way to teach things. But then again, the Mr. Black and White uh, Jigsaw, I I can see why he would think that way because at that point i think he's pretty much full jigsaw 
I didn't value my life until I tried to, until I survived driving my car off a cliff. <laughs> That's what made everything clear. But from his point of view, I can see how he can have that twisted view of it. It's just very frustrating to me how this movie approaches mental health. And yeah, they should have had Jill attack the point from her point of view because she obviously doesn't agree. Because if she did, she wouldn't be doing working in free clinics because she has a very nice apartment. So obviously, she could work in a prior fancy hospital, but she chooses to help people that need the help the most. Yeah. I mean, Jill does fight for him and says addiction is a sickness, John. It deserves treatment like any other disease. And I completely agree with her. It's just very frustrating. And I started to get very frustrated with this series and their general outlook of uh, depression, mental health, and drug addiction. And that, like, we're led to believe or to side with John a lot of the times with his theory through their dialogue and whatever. But I just don't. I don't side with him. And it's very frustrating that this franchise hinges on that thought process. Yeah, the movie is on John's side. In a way, it turns into John being the hero of these movies mm-hmm. from beyond the grave even. Yeah. Because even the people that take up what he's doing become like uber villains. You know, because Hoffman could not... If he, I wish he had a mustache in this movie to twirl. That's that's kind of what he's missing. It's He becomes super duper evil. And Amanda, she turns up into a murderess because I like killing people. I get a taste for it. I want to kill people. You know, they don't really suss out as to why. Yeah, like it, the accomplices are viewed as corrupt, but John is viewed as pure and he had pure intention or some bullshit and it's like no John was not pure. He is a very terrible person. And he's not looking into actually helping these people. He's looking into how to torture and create more problems for them, honestly. I think there might have been a point in the series, maybe when Lee was still writing it, where he was still... Because even in 3, you see him... And I think I made a point when we were watching 3. Like, you see he picked these people, he puts them through stuff, but he's trying to save their family in his weird, twisted way. He's trying to... You know, he kind of cares about the doc- Dr. Denlin and all these people and Lan Lin and not me so much. He doesn't care about Jeff so much. But he does care about the doctor. He does care about the, the daughter that they still have left, or at least alludes to it. Like, listen, we, we need doctor, a competent doctor that cares about people, a wife that loves her family and is not like abandoning them and, and abandoning the daughter and ignoring her and this and that. And, you know, so it's like, and that was the last Lee Winnell installment. Mm-hmm. And after that, it just go like, all right, we need more inventive traps, more inventive games. Uh, we're gonna get these group games in because that's what we did before. So this is pretty. It's gonna be pretty cool. And the lessons kind of take a sidetrack, but they deify Jigsaw more as they go. Mm-hmm. But, but not really, but don't really follow through with it in the way that I think was the original intention. I guess. I mean, I even in the first few films, there are still always people who are suicidal, people who are taking antidepressants, and they are. That's why they're put into the traps because they're depressed. And that's still not okay with me. It doesn't sit well. I agree. It's not okay. That I, as somebody that suffers with my own mental health, so I, I know that's totally not okay. Um, just it's a twisted way to help. Is like, and also I'm trying to try to think early 2000s time because he's like, all right, you're sad. You should value your life. I'm gonna. It worked for me. You know, somebody that like finds like, hey, I'm a vegan, so it works for me. So everybody should be vegan. It's like that's what that's kind of what I see John in the first three movies. But hey, almost killing myself worked for me to value my life. So I got to put you to the brink, and then you'll value your life. It's not right, but I. S- kind of see it it's just it's the one thing about these movies that really hasn't aged well for me i mean i watched white chicks last night and nothing about that movie aged well so this is doing pretty well in comparison <laughs> well i didn't like white chicks at the time so i can only imagine now it's pretty pretty bad <laughs> That that's my soapbox moment, and we'll go back to the scene. Uh, John and Jill continue to argue about 
John saying that, you know, they're just using masking agents and like they they're just going to continue to do this, go to prison and then come out and continue to use drugs. And Jill is arguing that it's not that simple (laughs) because I have at one point my note is John continues to be an absolute piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, He yells at his wife that addiction is not simple. Wake up. These people have no respect for the lives they're destroying. Once you see death up close, then you know what the value of life is. And that's my way. And I brought proof. It works. And then he shows Amanda in the room. In a bad wig. Oh, they they got her in wigs again? All right. It was kind of dark, so I couldn't tell. It was, it was a dimly lit room. And this this movie could be like the the, uh, the redemption of Amanda in a way. The writers wanted to redeem her her actions from other movies and re- kind of rewrite history. Yeah, at least in the director's cut. I'm not sure if those scenes made it to the theatrical based on my research. Well, anyway, so John reveals Amanda, says that she is clean now. She has a new appreciation for life. She's found a new way, and then she looks at her, yep, it's worked. He saved me. She was very proud of himself. And then we're back to the present. Jill leaves her office, and then we cut quickly over to Will at his office. He's alone. It's late at night. There's a storm going on, and he's watching the news. They're saying on the news that despite uh, police claiming that Jigsaw is dead in the past week, a new game has been found. The victims included people related to John, no matter how remotely. Then the power goes off and Will calls out for Hank. It was for Hank that he called out? All right, I didn't realize it was for Hank. I just, I remember him calling out. I just thought, because he goes out and just sees a shadow in the doorway. And he goes to his gun, loads it up. Well, he sees that the silhouetted figure has a gun. Oh, yeah, that's right. Go to his, goes to his desk, loads his gun, comes out, and does some pretty cool evasive moves. Like, ducks down under a table, under this. Now, when the hooded figure or the silhouette comes in the room, he gets up points the gun at him says hey who are you or something i can't remember what he says and when the guy turns around he plugs him shoots him a couple times gets up to him it's a security guard which if you're the security guard why are you being so sketchy just walking around the building yeah you could say hey i'm security you could say something he knew jigsaw was behind him like he's whispering as he's dying jigsaw jigsaw but before then, when he goes into the room, oh, yeah, when just... he's no, 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 like I, I believe that Jigsaw had a gun to him or like some sort of implement and was making him walk into the room. Ah, okay. Because he's able to say Jigsaw, Jigsaw, like that's trying to warn Will. And then he gets taken by good old pig face. Yeah, good old pig face with with his with his magic syringe. And puts him to sleep. The happy juice. The happy, yes, so full of happy juice, full of joy and smiles. Just. <laughs> uh, we then cut to Will in a trap. Describe this trap for me. All right, this trap, it's overly complicated for no reason. Very true. <laughs> he wakes up with um, an oxygen mask on, on, a, on his face, his arms and legs chained, and in between a vice. Not to mention you can see his shirt is covered in blood, or side of his on, on his side so from what you can tell he's cut he's chained up and he's in a vice then the tape starts yeah. and the tape says hey you have explosive Wait. devices Wait, okay one second we have to mention that this is the first time it's john on the tape it's not billy the puppet with the correct explanation which is interesting yeah john shows up it's more it's more like he says i want you to know who's doing this to you yeah so he says you've probably been wondering when we see each other again today is that day and then he says for years your probability formula has decided the fate of others the healthy have benefited while the potentially sick have been unjustly rejected however this formula does not take into account the human will to live when faced with death who should live versus who will live 
are two separate things entirely. Today, your policy will be put to the test. There are four straps around your limbs, and you have four tests you must complete. For if you don't, the straps on your arms and legs will detonate. Look closely. And then it shows a mannequin who has the devices on its arms, and they explode. You have 60 minutes to complete your tests starting now. You are not alone in this game. And then just as you have taken loved ones away from their families, if you do not reach the end before the timer hits zero, you will never see your family again. And not since Mark have we seen odds so stacked against somebody because it's, you don't, we don't know yet, but he's cut open on his side. He's in a vice with ch- with bombs on his wrists and ankles. Mm-hmm. But we cut from this uh, trap really quickly. And this is where they do that beautiful method of confusing the viewer as to the relation of characters. Because they cut immediately to the teenage boy and he's desperately trying to wake up his mother. Now, the teenage boy is Leo from the wonderful Canadian TV show, Being Erica, which is one of my favorites. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's about a 30-something-year-old woman who wakes up one day and realizes that she's done nothing with her life and she has all these regrets. And then she meets a therapist who offers to help her and asks her to write down this whole entire list of all of her regrets and then helps her time travel back to those regrets, relive the moment, change whatever she thought would change and make everything better only to realize that it doesn't matter. Like your life is on this path and you just have to make the most of it. It's a really cool show. All right. Is he at 11 on that TV show? No, not always. Sometimes. Yes. He, spoiler alert, you find this out in the first episode, he dies. Uh, when oh. Erica is very young, and so that's her major regret is that she wants to save her brother. But okay, that's that's a I can see that. But he is very much at eleven. He's he's our character at eleven in this movie. Yes, yeah, he's he's definitely at eleven, at, and as are a lot of the other victims as well. I feel especially the dog pit people. Dog pit, I can see them being at eleven, but I can see why they're at eleven. Yeah, them. I I, I guess I could justify their elevenness because it's pretty. I can't say I wouldn't be at eleven in their situation. So yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, they have absolutely no idea what's going on because at this point, there's no tape for them. They're just stuck in this room. Yeah. The mom's asking, where are they? What is this? I call him Leo for my entire time because that's how I know him. Leo says he doesn't know, uh, says to look at the monitor, has Will on it, and they have a monitor in their trap to view him and his progress. I asked here, like, how can they tell that it's, like, who it is based on the footage? Because it's terrible and he's wearing a mask, but we find out that they don't know who it is. They see him later eventually, and then he says, and then the mom says, oh, we're here because of your father. Yeah. Another way to fool us, to fool us the, the, the poor viewers of this movie. Exactly. But then we cut back to the trap, and we cut that to... Hank is in the same trap across from Will. Poor Hank. And Jigsaw's tape continues. Here's your first test. Your health and hereditary background place you in the highest category of success. However, the same can't be said for your adversary. While only 52 years of age, this man is a lifetime smoker with a history of high blood pressure and heart disease. This demonstrates very little appreciation for the blessings of his own life. Really? Because he's a smoker with high blood pressure? Uh, Jigsaw has lowered the bar uh, considerably as to what constitutes value in your life, I guess. Yeah, like, I guess we all know that smoking kills and it's not a great thing to be doing, but a lot of people still smoke and that doesn't mean that they just take life for granted necessarily. I don't know. Anyways, uh, your game will be... 
one of air. For the more air you both take in, the tighter the clamps around your chest become. The only escape is in the other's failure. So I ask you, when faced with death, who will survive? Live or die, make your choice. And to William's credit, he does figure it out and tells Hank to hold his breath. Granted, there is no way this wasn't going to end badly because you can only hold your breath for so long, no matter what you are, no matter what. But as a smoker with heart disease and all that stuff, there was really no way out of it. With There was no way out of this trap without Hank being the one, unless William just takes the bullet and just starts over-breathing to squeeze, to get squeezed. Uh, exactly. So the, this is one of the traps where I go, okay, what is Jigsaw's point now? Why is he just killing? I think they, in a way, the movie finds a way to forget forgiven because you can kind of disassociate and put, hey, Hoffman's doing this. Even though Jigsaw's the one that picked everybody and Jigsaw's the one that is on the tape because it's him. It's not even like it's Billy. It's like it's him. So it can't be like some voiceover thing. He's on the tape trying to put um, William through this. But Hank, for whatever reason, is the poor guy that gets to ha- that has to get squeezed and killed now in the vice all because he was a smoker and it was somebody William knew he happened to be the janitor in that building so if he was a smoker in the janitor in a different building he wouldn't be in the vice it's pretty ridiculous but quickly Hank does lose the task because he needs to take more breaths especially as the vice clamps further and further on his rib making him gasp for air so he he dies and that's when Will's vice is let go and he takes off the mask and collapses to the floor. This is where he inspects that gash on his side, and we see that it's been sutured shut. The light turns on, and he sees a key hanging from a string on a ladder. Above the ladder, there's an arrow pointing to a door. He uses a key to take off his right cuff, and then we cut back to Leo and the mom. There's a jug that says corrosive hanging from the ceiling, and beside a fuse box that has a red light on the top, like a red light bulb, and then a crank. And painted on it, on the top is live, on the bottom is die. From this point on, your boy Leo is like, I want to live. Let's, let's hit the live switch. Come on. I'm trying to live. Exactly. And his mom's like, we don't know what it does. <laughs> and then she also asks, she notices that the, the letters HF are on it. And she asks what that stands for. Leo says, hydrofluoric acid, which will eat through human flesh within seconds. Yeah, good thing he knew about that because I'm like, I'm like I don't know what it is. Yeah. But I'm assuming it's not good. It says corrosive. That's not good. Um, <laughs> the mom points out the timer. She says that they're here because of Leo's father. We then cut to Hoffman. He's looking at pictures of Leo and the mom, then through a window that at them in the trap, which is one of those lovely uh, two-way mirrors again. Is that the right word for it? One-way mirror? Yeah. One-way mirror. Because yeah. a, a two-way mirror is a window. <laughs> yes. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> Uh, the next pic that Hoffman pulls out is a picture of Pam, the reporter. We cut to a note that says what you're looking for and has the address 545 4th Street, apartment 413-H, uh, like signed by H. Pam's, then it's a flashback to her arriving at the address and Jill opens the door. Pam says it will only take a second Can and they can help each other out. Jill asks what makes her think she can just come to her door like this. And Pam says she found something Jill will want to see. She hands her a piece of paper. Jill asks where she got it, and she seems slightly panicked. Pam says, at the place where John died. Does it mean anything to you? Jill says no. Bye! And closes, <laughs> closes the door on Pam. And Pam slides the note back under the door. And this is where then Pam, she goes to the elevator. It's magically not working, even though all the lights are on and it's open. She leaves to take the, the stairs and gets uh, her dose of happy juice by Pig Mask. We then cut back to Hoff as he walks by a window and Pam is in another trap room. 
And then Toph starts creating his good old Charlie Day board with all the different pictures. And here's my thing about the Charlie Day board, which is whatever. Why is he creating it now when everybody's already in the trap? I really don't know other than he wants to get caught. He's saying it. I did this for the lulls, Hoffman. Based on his like, later actions, I also think he just wants to get caught at this point. <laughs> but right now we cut back to Will. He takes off the cuff. Uh, and the words, the party, are written on his arm. We then start a flashback. Uh, we get John talking, and he's thanking Will for sponsoring the party for the clinic. And he's introducing himself. They're introducing each other. They're introducing each other like to them. I can't think of how to phrase that. It's not working. They are introducing each other to themselves. Wait, no, that doesn't sound right. Um, they are saying hello to each other and introducing themselves. There we go. There we go. We got there eventually. <laughs> As a team, we can do this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and this is where Will says that it sounds like we're in similar businesses. And John says, "How's that?" And Will says, well, you try to predict people's behavior, and so do I. When people come to us for coverage, we have to analyze each person for the probability of success. And this is where we both have questions of what what do civil engineers do? Like, do we mess that up somehow? Do they predict people's lives? And then we Googled the definition and found out, no, no, they, they just build infrastructure. But, you know, because they have to know how people think in order to build the right kind of irrigation system and trains. You know, hey. also, as the insurance guy, he's not supposed to be evaluating how people act. It's, you know, it's supposed, in theory, the job was supposed to be to help people or pay for things that for when something bad happens. That's what insurance is for. You pay for car insurance in case I get an accident. You pay for health insurance in case I get sick. Um, yeah. And you pay, yeah, you pay it every month to cover the cost, you know, because no one's going to have all that money laying around. So you kind of pay into it to then use it if you need to. It's very reckless how he decides to just tell this man he met mere seconds ago, who he knows is involved in the healthcare field through his wife, that, oh, yeah, we, I have this whole formula of how we don't pay for people. I find a way to make sure we only cover people that will never need the service. Yeah. And if I think you might need it one day, we're not going to cover you or cancel the pencil policy. Yeah. It's great. I figured this out all myself. Exactly. He says it's a formula. It's pretty complicated, actually. But in essence, it breaks down to monthly payments multiplied by lifespan minus probability of illness. If the sum is positive, we consider coverage. And John asks who devised that formula, and Will proudly says to me. But John's asking him, so in a sense you choose who lives or dies, because I'm mad jealous and I want that to be my job. Like, hmm, man, just like, I, just, that's why I became a civil engineer, <laughs> to decide who lives and who dies. Maybe he does. He doesn't put enough handrails on, like, high legends. <laughs> He does those like open uh, staircases that like have instead of like the filled in bit, like it's just like the holes and then he gives them no handrails so that if they slip, they fall through. <laughs> they fall through, you know, not enough fire exits in cases of fire. You know, hey, I decide. Well, saying that, no, he decides which people have the potential to live long, healthy lives. And John says, but you're not taking into consideration the most important human element of all, the will to live. Until a person is faced with death, it's impossible to tell if they have what it takes to survive. Which is funny that he's saying this now, bef way before he has gone through the things that caused him to turn into Jigsaw. I guess he had this theory already, or maybe he met Will right before he actually died. I don't know. It cuts back to Will. He's entering trap number two. He enters a room that has a whole bunch of habitat display cases that are broken and open. 
And there's also a wheelbarrow in the room. We see two screens that light up and they say take and them. There are two handles underneath. Will says fuck that and starts to walk away. But then his cuff starts beeping as if it's going to explode. So he goes back and he pulls both handles that are attached to chains. There's a pulley system that is triggered. The lights turn on and we reveal that Billy the Puppet comes swinging forward towards him. We then get... Pretty jump scary. Yeah, pretty jump scary. And then we get our first Billy the Puppet in person giving the rules. Is this the only Billy the Puppet given? Oh no, you see him again, I think. We do see him in tape form again, but this is the only one where live Billy the Puppet is giving the rules and has animatronics and all sorts of things. Hey, the budget has gone through the roof. Yeah, uh, clearly Hoff got some inheritance when John died. So that he could <laughs> Apparently he was named in his will somehow. and then <laughs> Yeah, so that he could buy this like super fancy puppet. But anyways, Billy starts saying, standing on the platforms behind me are two of your colleagues. One, your file clerk, a young, healthy male with no living relatives. The other, a middle-aged woman with a family history of diabetes. According to your policy, your secretary is older and weaker and therefore less worthy to survive. But you know the loss that she will be to her family. And then there's pictures of Addie, the secretary, with her son. Then it says, While young Alan will disappear without a blip on the world's radar, only one can exit this room, and the choice of whom falls upon you. You must let go of one of to save the life of the other. As you can see, the choice is not so clear when you're face-to-face with the people whose blood will stain your hands. Let the game begin. And it's interesting. I guess interesting is the right word. What was the guy's name? Uh, The guy in the trap again? Alan. Alan, yes. I like how every picture of Alan, he was like doing the sad boy photo shoot. It's just like sitting on a bench by myself in the rain, walking alone in the dark. I'm like, man. It was his cover artwork for his new solo album, album, Alan, All Alone. (laughs) All Alone. You know, it's a a nice sad R&B album, but he's just walking around the city by himself, sitting on benches a sad way, you know, like when your feet are where you're supposed to sit and you're sitting on the backrest, just like, just because he doesn't have family or something, he doesn't have a wife or kids or whatever. He might have a mom and dad, he might have a friend or two, you know, something. It says no living relatives, so we assume he's an orphan with no siblings, I guess, no aunts and uncles and cousins, I don't know. He could have, you know, friends, a nice nice popular friend network. He could be like the most popular out of all his friends. We don't know. Maybe he has like six girlfriends at home. We have no idea. He's a polygamist. But, (laughs) exactly. It's possible, you know, but no, all they have is a sad boy picture. They just have Boulevard of Broken Dreams by Green Day playing in the background. I walked this morning out. It's like his permanent soundtrack, just in his in his earbuds all the time. Just oh. my shadows, the only one that walks behind me. And then uh, the secretary, she's in a constant party. It's like it's always party time for her. She's always out at a bar with her family. It's clearly well before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, way before, way before. No pandemic. Hey, even during the pandemic, she doesn't care. It's all about family and getting partying, having a good time. She doesn't care about any of that stuff. And my only other question about that was once you realize what the trap was, they pretty much put him as it's like a tense of strength. So it's getting pulled. He's going to have to let one of them go. Couldn't he have put the, the handles back on the, the hooks they were on? Um, When he first pulls them, they pull already far away. Okay. So I guess they wouldn't reach no. anymore and he couldn't pull both at the same time. 
Yeah, he should have worked out like um Simone before. Like, if he looked in some CrossFit or something and got some killer abs, he might have been able to save them both. When they both joined, the, oh, well, I guess he doesn't get that chance. I was like, when they both joined the support group next time. Uh, no, no, no. Go through he, a <laughs> don't think she'll be joining the support group. No. I mean, yeah, I don't think he'll be doing it. No. You never know. His bottom half could get some uh, nice work. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been something, yeah. We could just show up in a wheelchair. We have, I have we have no ideas. Then he gets pulled. He holds one on either side. Um, he makes a choice to let go and let poor sad boy Allen fall off the ledge. And he gets hung and then pulled up and far and away. And yeah. And then Abby's just left there, but no longer in danger, quote unquote. But yeah, I don't know how she's gonna get off the ledge or get the barbed wire off from around her neck mm-hmm. and he just says Eddie find a way out I gotta go yeah he's like be careful oh I do have to say he, he has given an hour to do all these things just like in part three where Jeff is given an X amount of time to do it and, and mm-hmm. Rig is given X amount of time to do these things it's he's slowly getting less and less time Jeff had two hours Rig had 90 minutes so an hour and a half and now uh, Will has 60 minutes Six minutes. But when they said that, I paused it, and it was one. It was an hour and three minutes left in the movie. All the stuff that this guy's doing is pretty much in real time from when the clock starts. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, because I, I remember I thought of it when Rig. I'm like, is this an hour and a half? Does it, is this an hour and a half left in the movie? So when I saw sixty minutes, I'm like, I'm pausing the movie when it starts to see. <laughs> and in my and the director's cut, which is what we watched, it was an hour and three minutes left. So maybe so, it was it other, so in the theatrical, in theory, it would have been exactly sixty minutes. Maybe well, n- maybe a little bit more because of the credits, but yeah, more or less. Okay, interesting. All right, so he goes on, and then we cut to the mom and Leo. The mom uh, is asking if they can put the acid on the bars, and Leo's like, what, with our hands? Like, how are we supposed to do that, mom? He then uh, points out the mirror and asks who's behind the glass. The mom screams, like Jennifer Love Hewitt, and I know what you did last summer. Like, she puts her hands out at the side and starts spinning in a circle, and, what do you want? Why are you doing this? And in the defense, with good reason, because they literally have no idea why they're there. I know, but it was just the fact that it was a complete homage without intention to Jennifer Love Hewitt in I Know What You Did Last Summer, because they do the exact same body language and start spinning around saying the exact same thing. We then cut to Pam, and she's in pretty well the same situation as Mom and Leo. There's the jug of acid above her head. It's hooked up to the sprinkler system. But she yep. doesn't have the switch like they do that says live or die. And she has a tape recorder in hers. So she presses play on the tape recorder. We hear you've sens- sensationalized my life, twisting the truth and exploiting my message for your own benefit. Then we cut to Hoffman and he's watching through the two, the one-way mirror, not the two-way mirror. And he's sorting through the photos of another woman. And that woman is the lawyer, but I didn't put it together at that point because I'm face blind at times. A lot of the women in this movie looks, they have, they got like a similar, they get, they cast it a similar type. Yeah, yeah. They look very similar. I don't know if that's just how they look in Canada. You can, you'd be more of a judge for me. Hey, we're a multicultural haven here and uh, it's not represented in these films. There's a lot of white people. <laughs> yes. But I'm watching it, I'm like, all right. Um, I feel they probably cast a lot of locals for these smaller parts. Yeah, probably. I, think. I haven't looked into any of them. I just recognized the one from the Canadian TV show. But I know, Almost every time I looked up somebody, they were from Canada. Like Pink Shirt, like a whole, all the little people we like. <laughs> they happen to be Canadian people. Like, all right. So they just got a bunch of locals, which makes sense. Yeah. He then uh, adds the pictures to his Charlie Day wall and his cell phone rings. It's Erickson. He says that they found the Seth tape 
Uh, they need to discuss something with him and he needs to come in. It's time sensitive. Hoff says that he'll be right there. We then cut to Jill walking into a hospital with a package. We get a flashback to Hoff setting up the Timothy trap from Saw 3. Timothy, if you remember, is the man who ran over Jeff's son and he was in that cross trap thing. That twisted his limbs. I think they pretty much allude to the fact that the trap was more violent than Jigsaw had anticipated because you see Hoffman messing with the gears. Yes, and John's telling him that you need to check with me next time before you make adjustments like that. And Hoff says, how many more next times is there? And John says, as many as there needs to be. Yeah, this movie, Hoffman's very like, I want you to die so I can start killing people. So I don't like the, I don't like all these roles. Yeah, and so Hoff tosses Timothy out of a wheelbarrow onto the floor and john says that's a human being do you like how brutality feels mark and hoffman says what let's be honest you want him to suffer just as much as i do the movie goes a long way to differentiate jigsaw from hoffman like jigsaw didn't do anything to anybody ever (laughs) except he most definitely did as we've discussed already but anyways amanda's asking hoffman when's your test he says he doesn't need one because he didn't take his life for granted Amanda calls him primitive, uh, asks what he knows about life, and says to get used to her because she's not going anywhere. And I wrote jokes on you, Amanda. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We know what happens. And then Hoff asks, are you sure about that? Sean tells Amanda that it's time to go get Lynn. Uh, they start. She starts wheeling him down the hallway towards the hospital suite, and Jill meets them in the hallway. Jigsaw tells Amanda to go be quick. And she gives like this awkward glance to Jill at this point. John asks Jill, why did you come? Jill asks him to stop. Don't do this. John promises when it's all done, uh, he will provide a way out for her. And she wishes that they were done now. John says he has something for her. It's the key for the black box. He tells her that when the time is right, she'll know what to do with it. And they immediately flash to when she gets the box and she still happens to have the key around her neck and she wears it everywhere she goes. Yeah, and then we flash to the package that had been in the box and then she's now putting that package uh, through the mail slot of the store at the hospital. We cut to the security camera watching her walk away. We then cut back to Will walking what looks <laughs> walking in what looks like Freddy's boiler room from Nightmare on Elm Street. No? Am I wrong? <laughs> No, look, yeah, no, I'm with you. It does look like, it does look all like the boiler room yeah. from the first one. Yeah, so he's walking through Freddy's boiler room. He looks at his left arm where the cuff used to be, and it says, final decision. We then get another flashback, and uh, John is in Will's office, and he says that I came to talk to you, Will, because I found a treatment for my cancer uh, that I think holds a lot of promise, but my requests for coverage... All of them have been denied, so I was hoping that if I came and explained it to you, you might be able to get that overturned for me. Will says, well, the buck stops here, John. Fire away. John hands over a printout and says, this is a doctor in Norway. He's got a 30 to 40% success rate with gene therapy. He injects what he calls suicide genes into the cancerous tumor cells. Then an inactive form of a toxic drug is administered and Will cuts him off and says that he's familiar with this type of therapy. John says there's a new trial starting. He's looking for new patients and seems to think that I'm the perfect candidate. Will says if his primary physician, Dr. Gordon, thought you thought he was suitable as a candidate, he would have pursued it. And John disagrees, saying that Gordon is a specialist making money on his specialty. He's not a thinker. 
and says that most of the time when John is in his hair, Dr. Gordon's halfway out the door. Yeah, his hand on the doorknob when um whenever um he goes to see him, which I don't know, kind of I don't want to say hit close to home because dad is also personally my dad is going through it, and whenever we go to see his oncologist, it is very much like he comes in, says three words, and is trying to leave as soon as he possibly can. It's really sad when healthcare is just a business opportunity for people as opposed to actually caring about saving lives. And here is an opportunity in the movie because Jigsaw's going for this weird treatment that they make sound very weird and very experimental and very unsure. It's something that would probably get denied even with all the best and even if it wasn't a corrupt, crazy insurance company, it's probably something that I can't see getting approved often because even later the guy says, hey, even if it does succeed right now, it always comes back. This isn't a treatment. Like, it's not something that's really... It's It, it works. It's like a, it's a Band-Aid is, is what he says. So I think they should have written it in a way where the treatment was a little bit more life-saving than it. Yeah. Than the way they ended up writing, if that makes sense. So to make like, the denial make more sense. To make the denial be... Or not make more sense. To make the denial make less sense. Because kind of the denial kind of makes sense. Even when Jake was explaining it. Like, I want to try this weird, crazy experimental thing in Norway this guy does. And it works thirty like one third of the time it works. Mm-hmm. So why are you denying me? I'm like, um, because it, it works one third of the time, and it's this weird experimental thing in Norway. Yeah, um, that's why. What annoys me is that if he were to fund it himself, because he has money, they say that he would be dropped from coverage com- completely, and he wouldn't be covered for anything else. Or at least write that in. At least take that out. Like, all right, if you want, we can't cover it because of X, Y, and Z, which are in this case sound like legitimate reasons. Just like we just don't drop you from coverage or whatever. But here they should have written in a way where it was, oh, he has a 60% survivor or at least 50, 50, 50, 50 rate. And it doesn't come back in half the time. You know, something, mm-hmm. you know, because even when he says it always comes back, Jigsaw doesn't say, no, it doesn't. He goes, oh, yeah, I know. Like kind of he knew it does. Yeah. So um, they should have just made the treatment. They should have written the treatment in a way that it was... Still maybe a long shot, but not so much of a long shot, if that makes sense. To make the denial just like, whatever, it's we're denying you because we don't want to pay for it. Or more like Mr. Abbott's denial, where it's just like exactly a gum disease, possibly. We don't even know that you had gum disease, but we, we're just going to make that assumption. Yeah, we don't know you have gum disease, so we're just going to assume that you just you did this to yourself and you didn't tell us about it, so... Here we are. Yeah. You know, yeah. They should have made that denial, like for Jigsaw also, to make it really hit home. But with here, it's just, I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, I can see them denying this. This sounds crazy. Of course, you're going to go for the crazy things because, you you know, you want to live. So you're going to go for whatever's out there. But it, the denial makes sense. Is my, and it's more of a, I guess, script quibble because you're making it up as you go along anyway. Might as well make it a better treatment than it is you know it's not like yeah stick in realism or anything like that yeah Yeah. but anyways uh john makes a comment about you know that in the far east uh they pay doctors when they're healthy when they're sick they don't have to pay them so basically they end up paying for what they want not what they don't want uh we got it all asked backwards here these politicians say the same thing over and over again Healthcare decisions should be made by doctors and their patients not by the government well, now I know they're not made by doctors and their patients or by the government. They're made by fucking insurance companies. <laughs> I wrote Q, Michael Moore, and Sicko. <laughs> We're just going to go into like all my like weird social soapboxy moments today, apparently. <laughs> I'm a socialist feminist. I'm sorry. <laughs> In your defense, this movie is, is kind of goading you the whole way through because they decided to hit healthcare, decided to hit mental health, they decided, you know, they decided to make it things that were relative at the time. Or, yeah. you know, so they're kind of they're poking you at this point like huh huh so Jackie what do you think huh? <laughs> this so, is 
Um, Will is imploring him not to do this because he'll be on his own. The subsequent costs will be staggering. And I wrote, what Will doesn't know is that Jigsaw owns approximately one million warehouses that he can sell off. Well, the one time they did talk about his assets, they'd be like, well, it was all real estate. So we, we were onto it wait, <laughs> a long time ago. Exactly. Uh, John says, uh, don't talk to him about money. He has money. Uh, I wrote in brackets, I told you. <laughs> but, uh, this is about principle. You see, Will, this is my life we're talking about, remember? And Will asks, what about Jill? How is she going to be taken care of when you're gone? The type of cancer you have is malignant and inoperable. And even if the treatment works, it will come back. It's an unwinnable battle. John says, oh, like, it's commenting, like, oh, you say that so smoothly. Like, it comes to you so easily to say it. I didn't see it that way, but okay. Yeah, exactly. I just, I hate John and John more and more as the series goes on. I I was fascinated by him in the first movie, and then I just hate him more and more that I learned about him. Still, I like him up to about three. Now that I'm on this watch, I'm like, three, I'm still liking him because I still see good things about him. But at that point, then they start writing him weird from four on. They start rewriting history in a way and just like leaning on things they probably shouldn't lean on. Yeah, I don't know. But Jigsaw tells, or sorry, John, not Jigsaw, tells Will, you think it's the living that will have ultimate judgment over you because the dead will have no claim over your soul. He balls up and throws out the denied claim and he says but you may be mistaken and then leaves we then cut back to will in freddy's boiler room there's a tape recorder on a string he pulls it and then the tape starts you have seen the flaws in your policy but what you have not seen is the extent some people will go to when faced with death we then cut to the lawyer from his firm and hoffman's picks she's tied up behind a cage we find out her name is Debbie. The lawyer from your firm has 90 seconds to cross this room or the device attached to her chest will discharge and pierce her brain. She will find that the journey across this room is filled with danger. In order for her to make it, you will need to be there for her. It is you who ultimately holds the key to her survival. When faced with death, will she have the skills to live? Let the game begin. They're in a boiler room, which, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this a while ago. They're in a derelict zoo, an abandoned zoo. And this is a crazy long two-story boiler room that they're in. That's in, that's for the zoo? Question mark? Yep. Okay. So, <laughs> didn't know um, lions, tigers, and bears needed this. Well, this can. This was cool. So fun. But, um. Hey, Freddy Krueger needed a place to hide out in. And they liked animals. That boiler room was way too big for a school. Not for nothing. <laughs> Nine right on the street. But, um, they're in this two-story boiler room. Freddy's in the background. You can't see him because of all the steam. <laughs> and there's a, a maze pretty much at the bottom where the lawyer has to get through. But she can't get... This This was like a video game stage. I'm watching... Oh, this is like a video game because she has to go through, wait for the steam to not go. And then she could pass until the steam comes by again. It's, he's leading her towards where she has to go to the end. And she can't pass because the pipes are open and the steam is shooting. Obviously, will burn her. And then there's a little lever that says relieve her. So then he has to hit the lever to relieve the steam. But as he hits that, it puts him in a position where the steam is hitting directly in the face and i'm thinking does he have a belt on or like use 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 your tie to pull it or something yeah but i mean he has seconds 
really she to has, think about it oh. oh i can understand not having that thought process i, I get it but he when we're leaving it uh she makes it through pieces of the maze and then she gets to this point where it's just way too much steam for her so he tries to relieve her again but like gives up halfway so she's kind of burnt then she makes it up the ladder to the landing that he's at and she's inside this cage and he's telling her to look for a key and she finds pictures instead, pictures of him and what's inside of that sutured cut along his side is the key. They leave her uh, like a little hand, not a handsaw, but like a little circular saw for her to pretty much kill him at this point because there is no conversation. She opens the gate and just goes at him. Like, listen, I got to get this key out of you. And he's saying the whole time, hey, I'll help you. I, I can do this. Like, like, it sounded like he sounded like he was willing to do it himself, Yeah, you know, to get the key out. But she wasn't even hearing it. She wasn't trying it. She was just murdered. So then at this point, he has to defend himself because she is trying to kill him to take the key. And the scuffle, her time runs out because she has a... Um, since Jigsaw's no longer around, things have been upgraded. You know, we have Wi-Fi signal now and the, <laughs> the thing. She has a cool little digital countdown clock on her on her uh, on her belt. Because besides her being in a steam maze, she also has something strapped around her. Because we didn't explain this one too much. She's something strapped around her with um, well, it would be like a tube sharpened at the end. That's gonna it's gonna go like a up. harpoon almost, but it's not yeah. quite. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a harpoon that's going to shoot up her body and through her head and out her brain. So she has to get this off of her before that were to happen. The clock had to start. She had to run through the steam maze, get to the end, go up some stairs, get that, get the circular saw out, get the key, and then pull that off of her in a minute. Yeah, so basically, again, with the there's no chance of her surviving just like poor Hank or no, what zero. options for either Alan or Abby. Yeah. I think she might have been able to survive, maybe, if... Because it's not like he was going to at least try to get the key out. So if she didn't just go whole hog is just trying to murder him to get the key out. But maybe, maybe between him out. having to open up those sutures and then look through his body for the key, hand yeah. to her, etc. Like, it would have worked if he had noticed right from the jump that he was going to have to get the key out of his side and he was, like, trying to get the key at the same time as helping her through the maze. Yeah, they could have, but this one, yeah, they set, they set this one up for failure. And with, with, all, with just a minute. So then they fight, her trap springs, and then she dies. And in my head, when I was watching this, I'm like, wait, if she just leans her head back, the, the spike will go up. Or a spike. That's a good one. The spike will go up and go th up and miss her head. But I don't know if you noticed this. Since I was thinking I was looking out for it. The mechanism pushes it up, so angles it like towards her and then shoot and then shot up. So she wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah. But again, with the there's not a single trap that everybody gets to live. No, there isn't a tra trap where there's a way out. Back to Saw 3. It might be my favorite one of all of them. Actually, now that I think about it, <laughs> to Saw 3 where um, Jeff is going through these things if he would have done something in each of these traps the person in it would have lived yeah which i really appreciated about that one but we've gone completely away from that at this point and it's frustrating yeah i think the writers get, get a little bit too addicted into making set pieces and kind of ignored the rest of it and this one they were trying to do a message and this one like oh insurance company's bad i don't know but the door opens for him he opens the door he has a key hanging out front of it and he looks straight into the camera very begrudgingly as he follows the arrows to the next and final test we cut to pam she's replaying the jigsaw tape over and over and we we hear the bit that it cut out before last time so the next bit is well today you will experience the meaning of sacrifice 
and we will see the consequence for those who unjustly hurt others. She's pissed off, so she throws the tape recorder, and then she's looking, and she sees, like, there's, like, a button, a set of buttons, and it says, see it work above it. So she starts pressing the set of buttons, and it changes the video feed on her monitor to different screens, and she stops on the view of the mom and the son in the similar trap. We then cut to Pam being on the like monitors in the bank of monitors in the control room and we also see the mom and leo we then cut back into their room uh leo points out the camera saying that someone's watching them the mom asks uh why someone would do this he says to see how we respond they want to know what decision we make let's pull the lever and the mom's saying that it's too risky. They still don't know what it does. And then this is when it, when it cuts back to um, Pam in the room. And she says the same thing. Not yet. But uh, that's when like he's actually going to go and pull the lever. She's freaking out. And she's like, no, you don't know what it does. But right now we cut to Hoff and he's entering the station. And uh, Erickson's letting them know that they found an abnormality in Strom's fingerprint. Perez says that the human fingerprint leaves an oily residue depending how long it's been exposed to the elements. It's highly susceptible to contamination. They found trace amounts of halomethane R12, aka Freon. Uh, so the And the production of that, like Freon or whatever, it ceased in 1994. So the question, it was the contaminant they found at the site already, or did Strom bring it with him? They're looking into the building's previous function before it was abandoned. Hoff is asking if anything came up from Seth's tape. Perez is like looking at him all sketchy. <laughs> She says, yeah, maybe uh, we may be on to something. The tape was in rough shape, but we were able to authenticate it. The voice was intentionally distorted, but didn't match J John Kramer's voice. It's currently being analyzed to descramble the tape and find the original voice. Erickson is currently on the phone with the tech. Perez then asks Hoff uh, if he's timing something on his watch because the timers, uh, like we can see the countdown happening on his watch. And Hoff no. says that he was before they called. Erickson then says uh, that they got it and the tech lab is off-site. Come on, both of you. Like, we're headed over to the tech lab. Perez and Erickson, they are FBI. So I would think they would have a tech on-site, maybe? You would think so, but maybe yeah. the funds in New Jersey are not best. <laughs> we then cut to Jill and the blocks. She takes out a cell phone and envelope number six. Well, I thought it was a cell phone. It might have been a remote now that I think about it. Gets into her car and she drives off. We then cut to Will. There's a spiral on the door that is for the next trap. Uh, he can hear people arguing inside and turns out it's the people from the dog pit. And they say that it's dark in the room. They are chained to something and it's spinning. Help. So he opens the spiral door and then a red flashing light turns on in the room. Inside of a cage, they are strapped to what I called like a playground merry-go-round, but they I think they call it a carousel. Yeah, no, it would look more like a little merry-go-round. Yeah, a like a children's little merry-go-round from a, a park. Yeah, I, I walked many of those when I was a little kid. We never had them at like my local parks. Like there, it would be cool if there was one at a park. I'm like, oh, can we go to that park because it has the merry-go-round? And they're like, no, no, we just go to the park next door. Considering we were uh, born, I was born maybe I think 12 years. I think I'm 12 years ahead of you, or so, yeah. or 11, something like that. They, those a lot of stuff got pulled out in the 90s. Yeah, because they were dangerous. The amount of children I saw get hurt because when I said the centrifugal force, you would literally fly off these things. They had one at a McDonald's around where I was raised. 
and maybe it's just my young mind having this memory. I have memory of me as a little kid on it and a bunch of like monsters or big kids just like standing by it, just spinning it. Oh, no. And kids shooting off. <laughs> because it, <laughs> and me, I just remember my grip loosening. Like, I'm trying to hold on as tightly as I can in my little, with my seven, seven-year-old grip or whatever I happen to be at that age. And then flying off and rolling on the ground for a bit. So, but, and then, you know what I would do? Get up and get back on. And then it would happen again. Yeah. No, the few times that I got to play on one, it was the best of time. But there weren't that many of them in our area. Anyways. Can't imagine. Yeah. Then they pulled it out maybe a couple years later. Which was weird. They didn't remove it. They just removed the thing that made it spin. So it just sat there stationary and you couldn't move it. Like a haunted merry-go-round just standing there. (laughs) We have a park in town. The locals call it Skeleton Park. It's actually called McBurney Park. It's called Skeleton Park because it's built over one of the oldest cemeteries of Kingston. And they did not remove the graves or bodies. They just poured soil and planted grass seed and built a park. The park includes like a wading pool and swing set and whatever. So you're just like swimming or swinging over a whole bunch of dead bodies. Wow. It's it's pretty Mormon. They must have never seen Poltergeist. Yeah, I know. That's always my joke (laughs) on the tour. That's my joke at the end. (laughs) Because there's a story about this man who... uh, his dog like dug up a hand in his backyard and he lived right beside Skeleton Park and he soon oh, the end line of the story should be and he soon put his house up for sale and then I add perhaps he saw the movie Poltergeist. <laughs> this is literally the cause of the movie Poltergeist. Yeah, it's great. It's so great. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's uh back to this trap. They're chained uh all facing like facing outward, so their backs are to each other uh, along this merry-go-round. And then the TV comes on and we see uh, our good friend Billy the Puppet. He says, before you are six of the most valuable associates of your most valuable associates, the ones who find errors in policies. Their findings result in over two and a half. No, sorry. Two thirds. Two thirds. Two thirds of all applications denied or prematurely terminated. Now you must apply your analysis to them. And will you be able to find their errors? Six ride the carousel but only two can get off. The decision of which to survive falls upon you. But remember, the mounted gun will continue to fire until all six rounds are spent. And if no decision is made on your part, all six will perish. To offer the two reprieves, you must press down, press both buttons at once in the box before you. However, in doing so, you'll give a sacrifice of your own. Two can live, four will die. Your decisions symbolized by the blood on your hands. It then starts and each person begins begging for their lives in various ways. They're trying to throw each other under the bus, as well as give reasons for why they should live. Just anything and everything they're trying to think of to say it. And I can't blame them at this point. Yeah, not at all. One woman very legitimately screams that she has kids and she's the first one that he saved. And the way the carousel works is, or the way the trap is kind of laid out is you're spinning as you tend. And it stops. When it stops, it's kind of like musical chairs, only it's very bad if you don't have a chair. A shotgun then is leaned forward, facing your chest, and it cocks by mechanism, and then a bike pedal causes it to shoot. What William has to do is he has to put his finger in a box, a little bit kind of like a trap we saw before where it's a hemorrhage part of where somebody had to crush their fingers, which was one of the accomplice traps. Wasn't it Seth? It was Seth. Yeah, it was Seth. He had to crush his fingers in order to try to survive, and it didn't work. Kind of like that. The only difference is he had to stick his hand. And also, the trap last time with um, the blood, with a circular saw. You have to go in to press a button, and when you press the button, it looked like a piston. 
or like a rod would come down and impale your hand as you press the button. And if you were to do that, the shotgun, instead of pointing at the person stopped at the carousel, it would point up at the sky and then shoot. It would still fire, thus saving the person that was spinning. Here is my little thing here about this. They making this guy choose who to, who should live or die based on an algorithm because this is what that group of people did. Right. And then um, make that decision. But they would make this big make decision based on information, right? Now, there's no information. It's just making that decision randomly. So, they should have had maybe, like, pictures or files or, like, something flashing on a screen saying, Eddie Winslow kicks his dog when he goes home. <laughs> oh, God. You know, whatever. You know, just whatever it is. Like, something. Sorry, Eddie. We don't actually mean that. We do not assume you kick your dog. <laughs> we do not assume you kick your dog. But you, know, but you know what I mean. You know, some kind of... When he goes home, um, he's... They even say, like, he is embezzling from the company for years as one of the lines. So, just show it as because right now we don't know if it's true or not because they, they're just saying anything they can about each other about themselves in order to survive so they should have like whatever they've been doing or not been doing or good and bad and so he can make a decision as to make it harder for him to pick or because he has to you know something i don't know you know, yeah something I, agree. I also think that it's trying to highlight the arbitrary nature in which they have been deciding people can live or die the fact that oh well they had a cyst on their gum one time and therefore they could get scar tissue and therefore they could get gum disease and then in some cases gum disease leads to heart disease so it's kind of like showing that like this isn't a true path anyways of how they decide who should live and die because he was just having them he just gets to hear them all beg for their lives and throw each other under the bus and they make it sound like all oh, these guys are all terrible people for throwing each other under the bus I'm like I would do that I want to think I would be better than that but I probably wouldn't be in that situation when you're facing a gun you're gonna say anything to try to survive except i would probably be focusing on me and like what yeah. what's good about me <laughs> like exactly like hey i'm such i'm so nice people need like the one lady the one the first one survived like, i got kids you know my kids you know this and then the other thing you know try to tie it that way but yeah well like, I don't know. they say or oprah says i forget exactly i found it out through gray's anatomy so anyway um they best thing that you can do to defend yourself with your words if you have an assailant is to humanize yourself is to give them a glimpse into your life who you are that like i have these people depending on me i like i'm human this is how i live my life and these are the good things about me and then they're more likely to feel guilty and feel like a connection to you and know who you are they also say that in silence of the lambs there you go maybe that's where oprah got it from (laughs) Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. He he makes this choice. He saves the woman with the kids and the blonde woman. I'm not sure why he chooses the blonde woman over the other dude. No idea. It's literally, I just think he just picked somebody. I don't think he. I don't think he picked one over the other. It was just this is. I'm just gonna save you. I don't think. Because he looked very defeated the whole time. Like he's just like picking somebody to not have them both die. Yeah, I did appreciate like the guy that goes to like absolute 11 because he just he realizes that he's gonna die and he's like you motherfucker you piece of shit whatever but then he's like you look at me while you're killing me and i'm like yes look at him while you're killing him because he's trying to avoid his eyes not not deal with what i just did but no you look at me you you sit there and look at me you're killing me stuff he's probably heard a million times before by people in his office uh with a whole new meaning exactly but he then to escape follows the arrow out of the room he gets his key for the last cuff we then cut to the attack uh, at the lab, she's uh, still unscrambling the tape, even though she said that she had it unscrambled. So that's confusing to me. But 
Oh, actually, they didn't say she had to describe it. Oh, she, they have something. So He said they got it. Oh, that's what it was? I thought they, they got something. Oh, we got something. All right. They got it. Right, yeah. It was got it. And even uh, Erickson at one point said, like, why'd you call me down here? You said you had it. Like, <laughs> But I'm close. Come on. Yeah. So Perez uh, calls Hoffman out for being looking like he's preoccupied. He says he's anxious about the tape. Yeah, no shit, because you realize you're on it. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, yeah. I'd be anxious, too. You see him casing the room, too. (laughs) The weird. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's, like, looking for his escape route and uh, grabs himself a coffee. Perez says uh, there are still a couple of things she can't wrap her head around, like Strom's motivation. He was a little bit of a hothead, but there was no indication of psychotic behavior. Hoff says you can never really tell what someone is thinking. The tech gets the word helpless and... And it's in Hoff's voice at this point, but like they're not cluing into this. I don't know. And it's repeating over and over. Like sometimes you feel helpless. Sometimes you feel helpless. Yeah. So it's beating you over the head with um with um symbolism, I guess, or I'm not sure what the right word is. Yeah. They're, they're trying to be cooler than they actually are. They think this is they think this is a really cool idea, and it is. But boy, they're trying to beat you over the head with it. Yeah. Because Hoffman's feeling helpless right now. So we're gonna have Hoffman saying, "Sometimes you feel helpless" on this tape over and over and over. Do you? You get it, huh? You get it? <laughs> Do you? All right, um, okay, movie. But anyways, uh, Perez says that she never thought of Strom being vengeful. All of his, all of the facts are there, but something doesn't sit right. Erickson says there's an alternative. Let's say that Strom killed Seth specifically to set Hoff up as the accomplice to Jigsaw. The problem with that, though, is the analysis of Strom's fingerprints found that the uric acid levels in the something land I can't even read my own writing there and it was something medical and complicated so I'm not going to try <laughs> residue were inconsistent for an individual with active epidermal metabolism in other words when he left his fingerprints on the latest victim Strom was already dead dun, dun, dun. and right then dun, dun, dun. the tech gets dun, dun, dun. the audio and it's Hoff's voice completely and then Hoff in a murderous rage slices Erickson's neck um, with a knife he had stashed in his pocket as Perez comes to get him, hot coffee in her face, and then he goes for the tech. I, um, I wanted to just make a note. Poor Perez and her face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she gets a whole bunch of stuff jabbed in her face last movie, uh, two movies ago, and this one, hot coffee in her face. And now I'm going to start my Perez rant, even though I love Perez. But man, right, she has hot coffee in the face. She staggers back, obviously, against the wall. And Hoffman goes for the tech, picks her up. They start struggling. And in that time, Perez is taking, she's reaching for her gun in her waist. It takes her about t- 20 minutes to get it out. <laughs> and when she does, she makes sure to not start shooting until the tech is clearly in front of her. Yeah. Obviously. And clearly the only one she can shoot. And shoots her like six times. Yep. <laughs> and this is where you find out that Perez was actually the accomplice all along. She sh- <laughs> That would have made more sense if then, like, Hoffman and Perez make out in the middle of Rome or whatever. Just, oh, honey, we we got it. It Something, whatever. But no, it's uh, Uh, a... Hoff stabs the knife into an outlet, blowing the fuse. And then he... Oh, sorry. No, he blew the fuse before she shoots the tech. Yeah. To try to... He he tried to stab the computer is what it was. I'm going to stab the computer to make it not work anymore. Because he's technical, the Hoffman guy. And then... He then takes the knife and stabs Perez. He asks who else knows about him. She says everyone. He says that she's lying. He hurts, like, stabs her again and then walks out, throwing the murder weapon on the floor behind him. And at this point, I'm like, dude, like, 
Like you are a cop at the end of the day. Come on. What what is happening here? You're leaving evidence everywhere. But then he goes to his trunk. He grabs Strom's hand from a cooler, and there's a flashback to Hoff taking Strom's hand from the great grated ceiling of the wall trap, and then using it to close Eddie's eyes and all of that. He brings the hand back into the lab, and he uses it on this the like screwdriver or whatever he used to like blow the fuse, and he puts it on the wall and like all sorts of things. And I'm like, they already tested the fingerprint and determined it was from a dead person. They told you this. What makes you think that this time they are going to be like, oh no, it's just his prints and that's fine? Like no. And I'm assuming it wasn't Erickson and Perez that did the analysis themselves. Probably a text somewhere. Yeah, exactly. In some other offsite place. No, there's a report somewhere saying, hey, these fingerprints were left by a dead body. There's also clearly evidence that he went with them to this lab and he gets out fine. What? Like, there's just so much here that it's like, no, buddy, you, you got caught. Just, like, make a run for it. It's like, just stop. <laughs> like, why are you trying to, like, plant evidence and all this shit? Like, they got you. And then... I'm loving this because then he gets this, this like this two gallon little jug of gasoline and pours like 19 gallons of gasoline yeah. in his room, just willy nilly pouring it on everything, and making sure like he drowns. If Perez wasn't dead from the stabbing, she she was drowned in gasoline. Uh, pours it over the tech, the computers. Erickson's in a pool of gasoline. I'm like, all right, um, you probably don't need this much to burn it, but fine. All right, just yeah, gasoline's on sale. I'm just gonna willy nilly. And then like, surprised he didn't write his name in it or something. Exactly, and I don't know what his plan is here. Again, with the like, okay, gasoline is an obvious accelerant, obvious that this was arson. So what you're planning to say that the dead Strom was an arsonist? Like. <laughs> He was. Come on, he's a jigsaw accomplice. He's an arsonist. He's um, he's a man of many traits. He yeah, like a jigsaw piece. He just fits, but he just fits anywhere. And he likes the building on fire and walks. Out. Yeah, exactly. And then we cut to Jill. She's in the current little shop of horrors with like the bank of monitors and whatever, and the Charlie Day ward. She looks like she's absolutely loving this shit. Is my note. Oh, yeah, no, she is. She has a very satisfied look on her face. Yeah, and uh, Hoff pulls back up to the warehouse. Jill unlocks a cabinet. She puts her purse inside, and then she takes out envelope number six. We get a flashback to Pam handing her a paper. She found uh, something. She says that she found something that she wanted uh, Jill to see. She found out the, the location of John's death. Uh, doesn't mean anything to you. Jill then places the paper on the desk on top of the keyboard. We cut to Leo and mom. Leo's going to pull the lever. He says, uh, we can't just sit here and do nothing. They need to make a decision. There are only two minutes left. Hoff and Will are wandering the halls in different areas. Will sees an arrow that says family. He follows. We cut back to Leo and mom. Mom says, okay, pull it. I love you. Leo says, I love you too. Get back. Pam's watching on the monitor and she's like, no, you don't know what it does. And she starts cowering in a corner thinking that it's going to pour acid on her. Hoff arrives in the control room. Leo uh, starts counting down to pull it, and Pam's screaming, no, no, no. He pulls it, and nothing happens. The mom says she thinks she knows what it does, after all. Hoff sees that there's the paper on the desk. We get a flashback to Amanda saying she's not going anywhere. We then see that the note says, Amanda, you were with Cecil the night Jill lost Gideon. You killed their child. You know it. I know it. So do exactly as I say, kill Lynn Denlin, or I will tell John what you did. And then it shows Hoff putting the note in the envelope and into the desk drawer where Amanda found it. We get a flashback that shows Amanda and Cecil in the car again, and then outside of the clinic, Amanda is coaxing Cecil to go through with the robbery uh, through implied promises of sex. 
We then get a flashback to Amanda shooting Lynn, very sadly, uh, after the whole incident takes place of the miscarriage, etc. We cut back to Hoff reading the note. Jill walks in the room. She presses a remote control that's hooked to a device underneath Hoff's chair, and he's electrocuted. This is like the, the like I was saying earlier, this seems like to be the redemption of Amanda. Because even the way they film her in this movie, she's like, they're, they're framing her in this movie as like the, the good disciple, for lack of a better word. Uh, accomplice than than Hoffman is the evil one. Even though, like, once you start thinking about it, she did set up a whole bunch of traps where people were dying. And she, at the end, when she does go crazy trying to kill her, quote unquote, not because no, she's still saying like, no, it's all bullshit. I kill people. This and then the other thing. So it doesn't really hold up if you think about it. But this is, but this was also stuff that was just in the in the director's cut. It wasn't in the theatrical cut. Yeah, exactly. Like this whole plot of this is why she killed Lynn. Okay, that makes sense. Why she went against John's wishes and killed Lynn. But what about all the other people that she went against his wishes for? She had no reason to do that. Yeah, so it might have all been cut out for good reason. If you start thinking about it a little bit too much, you start seeing the holes get bigger. But then we cut to Will. He's stumbling on. He makes it with one second left into the room. And the doors open to reveal on either side of him uh, the mom and Leo. And then Pam. He runs to Pam. And we reveal through the flashback of him calling off like someone's birthday that it was Pam he was calling. And she says back to him something like, oh, ditching your sister, like, blah. Quick question. Before you make it, when he first ran over to Pam, did you think like, oh, new young wife before they showed the flashback? Yeah, before the flashback, I was just like, yeah. oh, okay, so one is his like family family and the other one is like his mistress or something like that. <laughs> like, yeah, so I don't see anything. Like, as I forgot all about this, like, oh, you're going to your girlfriend and not your wife and kid, you jerk. And, but then no, that's not what it was. No. Um, so he's screaming, let her go. Uh, I won. Follow the rules. We get a flashback, and Leo and the mum are the wife and son of the man with heart disease, Mr. Abbott, from the start of the movie. Leo looks at Will and says, you're the man who killed my dad. We then see Hoff is incapacitated. Jill grabs two belts from her purse and straps him to the chair. We cut back to the victims, and a TV turns on the room. It's John. The tape says, Hello, Tara. My apologies for exposing you and your son to this kind of treatment. But I can assure you, it is not without reason. The man before you just made the sacrifices to save the life of a loved one. However, when given the opportunity to save your husband's life, he chose not to. Now you will be given the power to save a life. Will you grant this man the opportunity to continue living? Or will you dispense the same death sentence he issued your husband? Live or die, the choice is yours. Will says it's not my game to himself. And then we cut back to Jill. She's grabbing something from purse. There's a flashback to Jill getting the black box. And it's revealed that inside was the reverse bear trap. She puts it on Hoff's head, and then we cut back to the other scene. Will's asking for forgiveness. Pam screaming, have mercy. <laughs> I just thought of Uncle Jesse from Full House. Have mercy. <laughs> uh, <good>. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, the mom is, mom, now that we know her name is Tara, she's saying, uh, did he show mercy when my husband was suffering? We cut to Hoff. He's waking up. Jill says, John left you five envelopes. The sixth one was for me. 
She opens, there's a pick of Hoff in it, and she says, this is John's will. We're back with the other victims and the mom saying, uh, the reason I'm doing this isn't because I can't forgive you for what you did to me. The reason I'm doing this is because I couldn't forgive myself for what you might do to someone else. You will, you will never kill again. She then goes over to the lever, but she chickens out. She says that she can't do it. And Leo says, I can. He goes and flips the switch. The device falls down and it stabs into Will's back and injects him with the acid and then he like melts. <laughs> he melts, cuts in half. It's it's kind of like that scene in Robocop when the guy gets covered in toxic waste and and when he gets hit by a car, it turns into a pile of sludge. Kind of like that. Yeah. So he gets cut in half by acid and everybody's screaming, you know, panic yeah. screaming. Uh, we're back with Hoth. The bear trap is tripped. There's 45 seconds on it. Jill says game over. Hoff bashes his hand in with his head until he's able to get it free from the straps. He gets himself completely free, then grabs a screwdriver and tries to open up the trap. But it trips before he can get it off. What he does is something very creative. Since he's, since they're in a zoo, he he dives in and um, puts the bear trap when it's still closed in between some bars. And then when it trips, it doesn't open up all the way to kill oh, him. Oh, yeah. I was wondering why it didn't like full on kill him. That Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. That's why yeah, he's, he like headbutts some bars and like when it trips, it hits these bars. So it can't open up all the way and it gives him a, and it loosens up enough enough for him to get out of it. So when he gets out of it, he falls back and he's screaming and yelling. And I think that's the credits. And then if you watch all the way to the end of the movie after the credit, there is a scene. So the scene is Amanda walking down the hallway to a locked door and she peers inside. And it's Jeff and Lynn's daughter, and she's sitting there alone with her. I think she has her stuffed animal at this point. But anyways, Amanda whispers to her through the door, remember, don't trust the one who saves you. And it flashes to Hoff saving her. And then it's Amanda repeating, remember, don't trust the one who saves you. And that's the end of the movie. So, Jackie, now that we're at the end, mm-hmm. what did you think? I, it wasn't the best Saw movie. It wasn't the worst, but it wasn't the best. And as I said, like I had a lot of soapbox moments where I, I'm starting to really disagree with the thought process of why these victims deserve to be in these places. They don't. Well, no one does, really and truly. Nobody just yeah. does ever be put into these situations but it's really starting to piss me off their idea of what makes it worth you worthy of losing your life like being a lifetime smoker oh that means that you deserve to die in a brutal fucking way like no or oh you don't have any relatives and you're just a mail clerk and you've done nothing wrong yep you you deserve to die i didn't like this movie that much for those reasons i also think that there are plot holes that we are starting to reveal that it's just not making sense and that Jigsaw was actually like he says that he's not a murderer but the traps are set up for him to have people be murdered it's there's no way for certain people to win and anyways what did you think of this one I don't not like it but I can't say like wow you it's a must watch kind of thing um this might be the first one even it might be the first one of the series on this watch that I'm just not like I have to put on the seventh one now like I'm like, all right I can take a break get some coffee you know get some food watch it tomorrow watch it later watch it whatever and even for the one that was more problematic than this more triggering than this still when it ended i wanted to see five five when it ended i wanted to see six six when it ended i'm like you know what i can see seven but i don't have to see it right now it's just yeah this is we're finding with it not only problematic uh with the characters that are being put in these weird situations lazy writing is what we're running into now we're just running into lazy writing because everything we're finding wrong with it have easy fixes you want to make john the hero you can you're writing this make it make what you the way you want to show him just make it that way make it 
more clear that he's saying do one thing, but the accomplices are twisting it into something different. You know, like maybe the traps show something showing that the traps, when Hoffman gets the envelopes with the traps, let's say, or for the game for William, make it show that, all right, if he would have done this, um, both Sad Boy and Secretary could have survived. But Hoffman fixes it in a way where that doesn't happen. Um, You know, like it fixes, like you don't have to, throw it all out but you can do things in a certain way to if you want jigsaw to be the savior character which is fine if, if that's the decision you want to make i get it because there's like it's a weird new kind of serial killer or spree killer or killer for like a horror movie or a slasher movie as something as like there's a method to this like you want to turn him into the man that makes you want to do better mm-hmm. all right that's cool because it's a cool twist not too many of the of other killers are like that write it that way don't lazy it up because that seems to be what they're doing they're just being all right this is a cool trap screw if it doesn't fit in with, with what we want that's too hard mm-hmm. like that's where the or maybe they're just on a time crunch because they were coming out a year apart you know every october like clockwork the the, the release dates were announced before the movies were released like the like they announced the seven release date before six was even out so we knew october whatever next year saw seven's coming and saw six is coming in two months so they had to didn't have the time to do the edits or the rush or the whatever they needed to do to make them sound better and i keep on coming back to something you said two movies ago where where the writers came with a good idea and they were like, we have the Saul Bible. You know what? Screw it. Just do what you want. You know, and then that puts you on a path Mm -hmm. where you're not going to follow rules, establish rules already. Yeah. Well, okay. So you just made me realize something of what's not connecting in these last few movies. I'm left with no one to root for. Yeah. There's nothing because they're trying to make it jigsaw, but they're not doing, they're not finishing the job. Yeah. Like I, I don't root for Hoffman. I don't agree with him. I don't like him. I don't like Jill at all. No. I've been given no reason to like Jill, even though in theory I should because she's more sound than Jigsaw in the whole people need help when they're addicts. Like, sure, but she's just otherwise, like, she's been playing these games too and letting John get away with playing these games and, uh, like, enabling him to do it. So, anyways, uh, there's just no one that I'm rooting for anymore. And the people that I'm rooting for are the collateral damage, it seems like. I was rooting for Hank, if anything. <laughs> like, and-, and they have characters. You can root for Perez. You can root for Erickson. Like, they're, they're cops that are trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But then the script makes them do stupid things at every turn. Like, if they ran the test, they know it's a dead finger, they know all these things, and Perez obviously suspects Hoffman the entire movie. Yeah. Why are you giving him all this access? Why are you doing this? Why you take him to this lab off-site yeah. to get voice in us, which is literally like the darkest lab I've ever seen in any movie ever. That was an official lab. It was, it was like mood lighting. It was all dark. It's all lit by computer screens. There's no there's like there's no lab that is like this. Mm-hmm. And you know why are you going there alone? If it seems like they would they wanted to bring him there to like trip him up and catch him. Fine. There should be like a thousand cops outside waiting to get him. Exactly. Because you you guys all know these things. Either make them smarter or make them dumber or make them not know things. Like you can't have them know things and then make these dumb decisions. They can make these decisions if they believe Hoffman isn't super guilty when she's acting super guilty the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Because I know he's guilty doesn't mean that Perez and Erickson should know he's guilty or that he should act guilty. <sighs> so there's a whole lot, I guess, we would fix with this movie. But but what would you rate this movie? Rating. 
because it's going to have to dip again. Six. If the last one was a six, I'm at a conundrum because four is a better movie, even though more problematic, and it made it to five land because it was more problematic. This one might make it to five land just because it's worse. Mm-hmm. They both made it to the same place, but four still a better movie, if that's <laughs> that sounds weird. I No, I completely agree with you because four, you yeah. still have things to root for in number four. Yeah. And yes, a lot of characters are killed off in that, but you're you're still curious about what happens to the daughter. Um, Hoffman has just been revealed as the accomplice. So you're like, huh, let me see how that works. Um, and there's just more to look forward to at the end of four, even though it felt like an incomplete movie and there were problematic scenes. And then even the last movie, let me think. I don't know if I was really rooting for anyone at the last movie either. Like, I, I guess I was like, Erickson, hopefully we'll figure this out. And we didn't know Perez was alive yet. But you, you kind of root for Strom in that movie because he's not that way. Yeah, throughout the movie at least had him to root for yeah and and even the people in the game in that one they hit you with it at the end where like wow you guys all would have gotten out of this if you just would have worked together yeah like it's still like you know it's messed up game and people die but then when you look back on it like wow you could have survived your own biases your own way of thinking your own greedy way of looking at things are the reason you're not making it because you all could have survived. There was still a way out of that one. So like you even the, it's okay for you to root the people for the people in the game to be better people because that's the only way to get out of that game that they set up in that one. Even though they're all horrible people that caused like eight, six or eight families, whatever it was, to die. But I don't want to say more going on, but it had more ways to look at it, like more avenues if you wanted to look at them. Yeah, I agree. I was struggling with my rating for this one because I didn't enjoy it that much overall, but it was not as terrible and problematic as Saw Four was for me. So I wouldn't kind of split between a four or five. So I guess I'm going to do a 4.5. So our rating for the series at this point is a 68.5%. It's almost 70 isn't bad. When I was going to school, 70 was passing. Almost passing. I am looking forward to the next one. I, as I keep saying, I have questions for, from 17 years ago, and I want the answers. <laughs> but, to, but this one, I'd say, is the easiest one to fix. Then all, like, it's getting a low rating, but it's such, it's so easy to fix. What's wrong with this movie? Yeah, exactly. Like, and we've struggled in the past couple of movies to say, like, I feel that we're going to get more information. That's how this movie's set up, and thus I can't fully fix this movie without knowing where they're going. But this one. We see where they're going and we know what we can fix about it and how they're falling apart. It's like they're stumbling to the finish line. Like they're not even, they're not walking, they're not running, they're like stumbling towards it. Like they're getting there yeah. the worst way possible because they're like, all right, this is where you want to go. Fine. You can go that way, but you're not going there right. You just, <laughs> you're just messing up the whole way there. They're like Will stumbling through the hallways into his last trap. <laughs> exactly. Like he had a limp at the end. I don't remember him hitting his foot at any point or having to do anything where his foot would have been messed up. He had the Kaiser Soze walk at the end, like dragging her foot. And I'm like, and I was thinking, when did you mess your foot up? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's him trying trying to portray that he has an injury in his side and he's burnt on his upper body I don't know. on his face and his chest and he has a limp yep it makes perfect sense to me doesn't make sense to you <laughs> none like he would have had um he got caught in a vice so like he would have his ribs might have been hurt a little bit okay mm-hmm. then he got burned in his face okay then his hand got messed up okay yeah no don't know why he would be limping or dragging a foot or something nothing nobody stepped on his foot or anything right no not that i recall <laughs> Oh, man. But anyways, I guess next week we will be watching Saw 3D, the final chapter. Yes, or also known as Saw 7, the final chapter. And 
just so everyone knows, you know, Saw 7 is, was the end. Jigsaw does come in and it's tangentially related to everything, but not as it's not going to be the weaving narrative we've had for these last couple of I'm excited. We hope that you'll join us next week. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram or join the Facebook group at Series of Horrors Podcast. And if you want to email us, please email us at seriesofhorrors at gmail.com. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell the person in your saw trap, <laughs> um, tell somebody in the game, uh, <laughs> record an audio cassette and send it to someone. You know, whatever. You just you just get the word out. If you like what you're listening to, you think you know somebody that would like it too. That like these deep dives into movies where we talk about the movie longer than the movie was playing. Please have them listen. Write them a little. I know what you did last summer. No, that just says a series of horrors. <laughs> I know. I know you'll listen to a series of horrors. Yeah. And thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.